You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I am terrible at podcasts. I, I don't think on my feet. And there's like so much of this I just regret. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Okay, it's the camera on. And action. He's America's most infamous filmmaker. Here I am in the island paradise, Cuba. Totally arrogant. I love America. That's why it needs to be destroyed. And completely clueless. We're the biggest slave owner in the state. Don't you worry, Mass Malone. Huh? We got them bacon stains out of the upholstery. Oh. This time, he's finally gone too far. We're going to abolish July 4th. We're not shaving till they bring all the troops home. Thank you, boys. They're women. And it will come back to haunt him. Don't hurt me. I've always stood up for gay rights. I'm the angel of freaking death, you turd head. Now, three American spirits. I am General George S. Patton. That would explain a slapping. Are determined to knock some sense into him. Hey, you're not a spirit. I know. I just enjoy slapping you. And will teach him the true meaning of patriotism. Ah! This is the greatest country in the whole wide world. From David Zucker. Mohammed. The master of movie satire. I must use last names. Hussein. God's sake. Comes an outrageous new comedy. It is getting harder and harder to find suicide bombers. And all the really good ones are gone. With Kelsey Grammer, Dennis Hopper, Trace Atkins, Leslie Nielsen, David Allen Greer, Robert Duffy, James Woods, Rosie O'Connell, and John Voigt. With Kevin Farley as Michael Malone in An American Carol. They can't see us. Right. This is going to be harder than I thought. In theater soon. Turn out the camera! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the Democratic Party? Also back with us this week is Mr. Mike Sullivan. I am proud to be part of the country that has the fastest horses, Mike. This week we are looking at the conservative comedy, An American Carol, the bastard child of Charles Dickens and Bill O'Reilly. The film tells the tale of Michael Malone, a stand-in for filmmaker Michael Moore, who's played by Kevin Farley, comedian Chris Farley's younger brother. He's a liberal know-nothing who's inflamed hate against the land that we love and is visited by four ghosts, well, three ghosts and a contemporary country singer, to try and convince him to love country music and stop complaining about gun control, global warming, unjust wars, and other bleeding heart liberal causes. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, we are going to be getting the spoilers on this episode. So if you don't know about A Christmas Carol, if you've never heard of A Christmas Carol, I think there are 1,200 versions of A Christmas Carol. If you don't know Christmas Carol with a K by Edmund Wells, the well-known Dutch author, we're going to ruin a lot of things for you. I would have to say the first thing that we're going to ruin for you is that this film was directed by David Zucker, who helmed some of my favorite films, including Airplane, Top Secret, and Basketball. Mike, when was the first time you saw An American Carol, and what did you think? I actually saw this when it came out on opening day. At the time, I was um, writing movie reviews for The Weekender, which still exists, but they like cut their staff down like around 90%. Thanks, Obama. And this is even sadder. I went at like 12 in the afternoon on a Friday. I went during like the loser time. And what was weird about it, it was just me in the theater. And it was just a, a middle aged, two middle aged couples, like clearly on a double date. And 
I think the only thing they laughed at in the movie was the scene where Robert Davi is doing like the chicken dance while he has like the dynamite sort of in his cover bun. The thing was, I was like at the time I was really in the parody movies. Like I had like this perverse interest in parody movies. So it was terrible, but I kind of liked it because it was structured like a parody movie. But and the thing was, I hadn't seen the movie since it came out, I guess, 10 years ago. I watched it again in increments. And dear fucking Christ, is it terror? It's really bad. It is so it's not so much the politics. It's just it's it feels like, you know, Mel Brooks, when he did Dracula Dead and Loving It, that sort of like old man kind of comedy. You know, it's just and it's mixed with like old man politics. And it's just it's very difficult to get through. Rob, what were your first impressions? I didn't see this until I signed up to be tortured by you because you're like, hey, you know, what would be really nice. Let's have you back on the show because, you know, people miss hearing your mellifluous tones. So why not? I want you to be on the show with Sullivan. So I said, fine, because I figure maybe it'll balance out and help everybody out because I believe that Mike still holds the record for the, the, the least loved uh, episode. Anyhow, I think the one thing that I'm going to get into in here is that as you know, not to gild the lily here but yeah it's not very funny but i think part of the reason why it's not very funny is because of how sort of the morals or politics of that side of the aisle is i think it would be very interesting we should have done this mike is maybe uh found a right-wing film critic or um or film fan to watch this and tell us where we're all wrong because i get the feeling that to a certain extent, you're going to take aim at certain things that are in here. I'm going to kind of look at uh, some comparisons between, as you said, the man who brought me one of my favorite films of all time, Airplane, and um, how he handles things in here and how he's handled things in, say, Airplane, for example. Similar scenes, but in this one, it just doesn't work. And then also, I think there's a certain thing of... When you're talking about a political sensibility, especially a conservative political sensibility, it's very hard to be irreverent, but one of your core principles is reverence. That's a good way of putting it. I can never really put in, in you know, in, in the right way of why, like, you know, conservative bent comedy doesn't work. And I think that's the perfect way of putting it. You know, it's just you can't you can't be irreverent when your politics are just total reverence. That's that's what amazing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should say, though, um, there are parts in this that made me laugh. The Robert Davi bit that I just described, that made me laugh. The part where Davi has the fake beard over his beard, that made me laugh. And just like seeing well, it didn't make me laugh, but I like seeing Leslie Nielsen as Osama bin Laden. I think originally I think that that bookend thing was reshoots. I think that was intended as like a surprise cameo, just show him showing up as Osama bin Laden. But there were things in this. I mean, there wasn't much, but there were things in this that made me laugh. And I got to admit that much. Yeah, that bookend is weird because it does put him in the middle of the movie as a completely different character. It puts the little kid, Attica Schaefer, who's playing this kid, Timmy or Jimmy. He's at the beginning of the movie, but yet he's part of the movie as well and it's just like wait what what is going on here so i i don't want to like question the logic of a parody movie that much but it just feels really kind of strange especially the way that he shows up and uh leslie nielsen shows up and starts massacring people because people will interrupt him while he's telling his story and they keep cutting back to him at this picnic 
but then he shows up in the movie and nobody blinks twice about it. And I'm like, wait, is he a ghost? Is he kind of breaking into that narrative wall? But it it doesn't really work that way. Plus, all those kids died at the end. Like, they were accidentally, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but they were accidentally murdered by uh, uh, Kevin Farley. So they not only don't, when they show up in the beginning, they're, they're like, alive, but they're, like, cured of, like, all their, their sort of, like, ailments, basically. Because it's all the same kids. Well, and it's weird, too, because the, all those kids do have ailments, and you would think that they should just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and quit complaining and quit looking for handouts from their uncle, who's making a decent living as a documentary filmmaker. We're, we're really all over the place on this, so I don't know where you want to go. I th- we open with the cookout, and we open with the sweet strains of Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama, which has become kind of the redneck anthem over the years. I much prefer its use in Con Air myself, especially when you have Garland Green, played by Steve Buscemi, talking about Define irony. Bunch of idiots dancing on a plane to a song made famous by a band that died in a plane crash. The other thing to think about also with Sweet Home Alabama is that it is, uh, much like this movie in a way, an answer there are this phenomena called answer songs where you've got your your song that you put out there and then you get the follow-up, you know, like Judy's Turn to Cry, these kind of things. And this was an answer song, and a lot of people forget that, that this was an answer song to Neil Young's Southern Man. Yeah, not only that, but there's also a line in there uh, where they say, well, Watergate doesn't bother me. So uh, it's obviously from a, a standpoint of, uh, of a politically right person who you know doesn't care that the the president used dirty tricks and had people break in to destroy his enemies um you know and things like that so that's fine or when the president does it that means that it is not illegal and then we go into leslie nielsen who's cooking burgers and catches a frisbee and then throws a frisbee into the face of a black woman and that kind of like sums up the movie almost right there you know and the thing uh that i tried to figure out is like how many people of color are in this film that aren't used in a stereotypical fashion meaning robert davi and all of the um the terrorists that we'll talk about coming up and i think outside of a few speaking roles i think she's the only black person at this uh, barbecue so it's it's kind of funny that why why did they choose to hit her in the face with the frisbee anyway you bleeding heart liberal you're just looking for excuses yeah 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 it's always race sorry oh you fucking snowflake by the way are we gonna get doxxed for this episode i just i feel like i I should make some preparations beforehand before it goes on air just so i don't get doxxed oh yeah look for your twitter is just gonna blow up you know the thing is is i really enjoy doxxed martins i mean those are some really nice shoes The conceit of the movie, as I mentioned up top, is it is a retelling of A Christmas Carol. Our Scrooge, as Leslie Nielsen says in the opening here, our Scrooge hates the 4th of July. He doesn't hate Christmas. And our Scrooge is this Michael Malone character who is played by Kevin Farley. Why didn't they just call Michael a moron? Because it's not like this film is smart enough. It's it's not like this film is smarter than just calling him Michael Moron. I mean, the (laughs) the one sheet just has him holding a fucking hoagie. In the one sheet, I mean, if they had the technology to do it, there would be an audio sensor that whenever you passed it or got close enough to it, there'd be a fart sound going off. The other thing I wanted to ask in here is you guys keep calling it a parody film. 
I don't necessarily see it as a parody film. I see it as someone trying to make political satire. To me, a parody film is more like what you were talking about, like Scary Movie, right? Is a is a parody of the Scream films. This, it's not really a parody of a Christmas Carol, and it's not really a parody of a Michael Moore documentary. So to me, it's a it's someone trying to do a satire. So I guess that's what I'm going to call it. Well, it does make fun of Sicko, but it makes fun of it in the way, like, if you're mocking someone, you just go, me, 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 me. You're just like, make fart noises with your mouth. I mean, that's kind of like parody. I guess it is more satire than parody, but there are moments. Aren't there moments in here? Like, there's there's a moment when we cut to him, uh, Michael Moron, which is a far, far funnier name, when we cut to him at a diner and they play the Seinfeld theme. So it's like, there's moments, but but then it's not Seinfeld. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I also like the meta John O'Hurley joke, where he's playing the Mater D, and then it's like later, they go later and say that, he hasn't got work since Seinfeld, and it turns out that's actually John O'Hurley as the Mater D. There are things I liked about that movie. There are some actual funny bits here and there, but it's like, I don't know if you guys have ever had the pleasure of seeing Postal by uh, Uwe Boll, but I would say that Postal kind of does what this movie is doing as far as making fun of Osama bin Laden and Bush and these things. It does it in a better way than an American Carol does. And just the idea of like terrorists blowing themselves up. There's a training video at the beginning of this film. We kind of go from Michael Malone to, you know, who's going to be dumb enough to give him money for a movie. We go over to Afghanistan and here's the Taliban and they're trying to blow up somebody and they're using rickety bicycles and it's unsuccessful. They're all at a bar together. These three members of the Taliban, including Robert Davi and they are watching a training video, apparently, or a commercial. I don't know why it's on TV at that time, but they're watching this tr- training video of how to be a good member of the Taliban. Sir, I think we might need a new recruitment video. Look, ours looks, you know, cheap. This training video will teach you. Here are Ahmed and Aman. They may be brothers, but they couldn't be more different. Ahmed knows punctuality is important. He makes sure to leave plenty of time to get to his bombing site. Aman leaves everything to the last minute. Oh, shit. Ahmed double-checks the address of the bombing site, so there are no mistakes. Aman doesn't. 25, 18, 25, 19. Shit. And there are potential for funny jokes in there. It's kind of like a don't be a Mr. Bungle kind of a, a video. Yeah, it's a goofus and gallant kind of riff, uh, riff. Yeah, and suicide bombers. That's a bit from the Onion movie. David Zucker, that was, he used that in the Onion movie. Because I own the Onion movie on DVD. And I actually, when I saw that in the theaters, I'm like, you lazy bastard. You're actually recycling stuff from the Onion movie? That's not a new bit. So the only so some of the only stuff that I like in the movie is already recycled from something else. Exactly. I think Zucker was the executive producer on the Onion movie, and he just reused that for the an American Carol. I'm surprised people didn't know that because I was listening to some other uh, podcasts about American Carol, and no one brought that up. That's actually from the Onion movie. Welcome to the Al Qaeda terrorist team. This training video will teach you what angry slogans to scream. 
how to blend in to a typical American city. <laughs> yeah. And so much more. Here are Ahmed and Aman. They may be brothers, but they couldn't be more different. Ahmed knows punctuality is important. He makes sure to leave plenty of time to get to his bombing site. Aman leaves everything to the last minute. The Onion movie is one of the few parody movies that I haven't seen. That, and I've never been able to make my way all the way through movie 43. I had to stop after the ball chin thing. I never saw it, believe it or not. I never saw him. Oh, oh, yeah. It is painfully bad. Was Is the Batman and Robin bit in that? I, I, that's the one reason I wanted to see that. I never got around to seeing that. It might be, but if it's after the ball chin thing, I never made it. I did the same. I turned it off at that point. I guess Mike and I have the same sensibility on that one. <laughs> Jesus. But then there are those easy jokes where it's like, oh, everybody's name Muhammad. Everybody's last name is Hussein. And it's just like, oh, for God's sakes. And then the, we get the that broad idea. I mean, they set it up right up front that everybody in Hollywood hates America. And that's why Michael Malone is perfect for them to have as this dupe because he's clueless and he's part of this system that absolutely hates America, that Hollywood is set up to hate America. This is how I felt about the way they, they made fun of Michael Moore. It's like they just found out about who he was and what he did 10 minutes before they shot the movie. Because the way they attack him, if someone went after Steve Bannon and the only thing they made fun of was the fact he likes model trains and is bald. You know, like everything they, they, they get him on is something that doesn't exist. Like the fact that he's single and, you know, he he's afraid to use guns. I don't know if he's still a member of the NRA, but everything about it just seems like it's just such a I, I hate because it's so overused. But I, he's like such a fucking straw man in this movie, such a straw man. And there's plenty of reasons not to like Michael Moore. I have problems with Michael Moore, and I would consider, you know, if based on the politics of this film, I guess I would be some kind of radical leftist. Because the, the, the big issue I have with Moore is people conflating his films with documentary when they're actually – they're editorial. They're he's he's a polemicist. He's an essayist. Is really what he is. He goes out and he finds the sources in order to to make his points. It's not objective journalism. It's not frontline. He's not you know Lowell Bergman over here, but he doesn't make any kind of qualms about that. He you know he's like this is my point of view, and if you don't like it, so what. But there are certain certain aspects of him. There's certain parts of him with that hat and various things that it's a character. Like I know people. You know, because we're here in Michigan, you know, who have either worked with him or um, handled him for press uh, when he was out doing stuff. And they're like, the person you see on the stage or on TV is is different than the person that I had to to deal with. I mean, from my understanding, it could be very demanding. I mean, I had a friend who toured him for press on The Big One, which was the movie he did uh, before Bowling for Columbine, but right before, uh, right after um, Roger and Me. And she had a like a meltdown moment that can only be described as that scene like in Rain Man where Tom Cruise gets out of the car and starts screaming about why does it matter where you buy underwear to um, Dustin Hoffman in the movie. Like, why? Why? Shut up. It doesn't matter that you get to buy the underwear at that one place because he would just kind of just sit there and just pick, 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 pick. And it just drove her absolutely mad after about a day and a half of having to deal with him. So there are a lot of people who who have problems with him as a as a personality. There's certain parts of his politics I don't agree with. There's certain ways that he does his films 
that I don't agree with. I mean, you can attack that all day long, but like you said, I mean, it seems like they just want to go for really low-hanging fruit. Hey, he's fat, and hey, he's a liberal, and hey, here's a fart joke, and hey, he's eating pizza with rat turds on it. The hat thing. I mean, with that last documentary that I saw of his, which was him going around to college campuses, I got tired of the hat thing. And I'm like, if you're going to parody something, why don't you parody the hats? You know, just every single shot of this guy put him in a different hat. Instead, he's just wearing a state hat through the entire thing. And I'm like, no, that's his thing. The hats are the trademark. Again, if you go back to Steve Bannon, you're going to put the guy in 50 shirts. You know, just you, you got to figure out your subject and make fun of that or do what what we're talking about with the way that he makes his quote-unquote documentaries which is you know the way that he'll kind of twist things or set up stuff or you know put people in no-win situations the way he picked on charlton heston in bowling for columbine let's go ahead and let's do that you know but instead it's like let's just make fun of documentary films for not making very much money. They make that joke so many goddamn times in this film. It's like, okay, we get it. But the thing that's funny from the documentary standpoint is that if you wanted to put polemicists against each other, you know, more versus a, a right winger, right? Be it Steve Bannon, who you've talked about on this show, and you've you've had a Steve Bannon documentary on the projection booth before, or even another guy who's all over the place and does these, Dinesh D'Souza, those movies absolutely make no money. They don't. They don't make any money compared to more. So in the battle of the box office between left-wing documentaries and right-wing documentaries, who's making the money? What's what was what's David Zucker's issue with documentarians? Did like Werner Herzog pat, pat, pants him at one point? What is the axe to, the he? What is the axe to grind against documentaries? Every other joke is like documentaries are dumb. Look at there for dumb people that want to sleep. Yeah, you know, it's 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 ah it, oh, God. What was the point they were trying to make with Sicko? By the way, because that was the one parody they have in the movie. It's it's like wasn't the point of that? It's like hey, look, even in Cuba. They have free health care rather than like the point this movie's making is, hey, in Cuba, they have free health care because fuck you, America, you piece of shit. Like, that's the point they're trying to make with the, like the parody in this movie. Well, they're kind of saying they don't actually have health care. They will just take you out and shoot you instead. I was like, really? <laughs> that's where you're going to go with this? I mean, between not having health care and having to run a GoFundMe to pay for a liver transplant and being taken out and shot, I think some people would go, you know, I'd rather be taken out and shot than bankrupt my family with the way things are going here in America. Repeal and replace, Rob. Michael Malone is so evil that he can't stand Boy Scouts. He can't stand anybody in uniform. We're going to find out why later on in the film. He can't really stand Girl Scouts, especially when they call him fat, ignorant, ignorant traitorous pieces of shit his nephew is in a uniform his nephew works uh is in the navy so that's just a terrible thing he's almost embarrassed of his nephew when he comes in and again i think his nephew is just kind of a freeloader you know he's just uh, apparently his kids are looking for handouts from all that sweet sweet documentary money i would like to see if because uh, i only watched this once and then i took notes i should have watched it twice but i didn't have time in that scene from what i remember he walks up and there's competing. There's a Boy Scout table and a Girl Scout table. And he kind of brushes off the Boy Scouts, but goes over to the Girl Scouts and buys the Girl Scout cookies. 
and says something. I, I think he may say something about their politics because this has been one of the things that obviously over the years has been a been an axe to grind for those on the left is that the Boy Scouts were very much we don't let uh, people who are gay be scoutmasters, trans things like that. And the Girl Scouts were always like, hey, we're cool. We'll let anybody in. A little bit more get along, get along. And so I'm, I'm trying to remember if in the film, while they're kind of taking aim at him buying the cookies from the Girl Scouts, are they also taking aim at the political statement of supporting the Girl Scouts but not the Boy Scouts? I don't think this movie's that deep. I think a lot of this is just – if you can picture your, like, uncle – screaming at like Hillary Clinton during the political debates, but every now and again, he honks a car horn. I think that's like the level of comedy at play here. The thing also that I was trying to, to get uh, just going back to the more character is that they're not like, like I was trying to figure out, like we were saying, if they were, if they were aiming at him specifically, but I think that he's really just a cipher for any liberal. And therefore, they don't want to get too specific to him. It's just, hey, Mr. Liberal. And therefore, all of their target is just, hey, you're a liberal. Hey, you're a liberal. And these are all the things that liberals like, including communism. And they like, you know, they're not smart enough. And they're, they don't, uh, they, they don't like the country. And that's basically the, the whole point when we get to him and his nephew, who's the, the Navy officer who's heading out and he's going to go to the Persian Gulf. He's signed up and he's going to go uh, over there because uh, that's where the action is and is uh, and the, the country has called him up and he's got to go do his duty. So that's where we're at now. Well, when it comes to the Girl Scouts, I think the only thing they really get into is one, they have cookies. So a, a fat, traitorous piece of shit like Michael Malone is going to want to have cookies and two, he asks them about some of the merit badges that they have. And that's when the girl says, you know, and I got this for being polite to a fat, traitorous piece of shit like you. That's as far as I get into the politics of the of the Girl Scouts versus Boy Scouts. The crux of the film is that Michael Malone is setting up this protest to protest the 4th of July which doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, we're supposed to believe that Michael Malone hates America because he criticizes America, because he, he says that things could be better. And apparently by doing that, you say that you hate the country and you want to abolish the recognition of the day in which we signed the Declaration of Independence, one of the greatest documents out there probably only second to the U.S. Constitution. But in this movie, the weird logic is is that he wants to abolish that date and not have people celebrate because apparently that's a celebration of a country which is oppressive and has turned into this monster that he wants to slay. In a lot of ways, this film kind of mirrors what's going on today. When I've gotten together with members of my extended family or, you know, when when I see sort of debate in the news and things like that, to me, the film really fits into this sort of like talking past each other in that, as you were saying, you know, like someone who's on the left who could have genuine criticisms of the system, like these things are horrible and they need to change. We need to fix them. They're just seen as illogical lunatics, while at the same time, those at the right are just bought into the system and they believe in the system and they and specifically we see over and over and over again in the film that they believe in authority and they 
and and they have a reverence for authority. And that was the point that I was making about how do you how do you balance this question of being irreverent while having reverence? And I've got a a link that that you should share about this idea of the psychology behind uh, morality. And I know this is way too you know kind of highfalutin for this film that we're talking about, but I think it's kind of important. And it's a guy who's a neuroscientist named Jonathan Haidt, and he was on on Being, this NPR uh, talk show. And he says that basically um, there are two sets of values that those who consider themselves liberals and conservatives share, and that's compassion and fairness. They share that. But they say that conservatives also have three more moral values that they carry with them. And they have to wrestle with. And those are questions of loyalty, authority, and and sanctity. So that's reverence, right? So the idea of loyalty and authority, the idea that, you know, therefore the president or whoever's in charge, yes, we have to be we have to be loyal to the flag, we have to be loyal to the country, we have to be loyal to authority. We can't question those things. There's certain things that are you know, there, there's a piety, there's a sanctity, there's a reverence for these things. And we'll see it later. And I think that's part of the reason why in this one scene later, we'll get to, I'll, I'll bring this up again, but just sort of talking about where this sort of political debate comes from and how the Moore character is so blown out of proportion that, of course, he's not going to understand his his nephew signing up and saying, right, I've, I've decided to go fight this war. In in that way, more alone comes off as a complete coward because he's just like, well, why would you want to do that? You know, you can basically you should not go anywhere near the fight. Even though Hawkeye didn't want to fire guns, he didn't have a problem with there being a war and him serving. I, he just thought that war was kind of a name, but he was there to do a job, and that job was to fix soldiers who were hurt. And in this way, I think Malone is very much, he doesn't agree with the war, but he will do what he needs to do to support the country. But in this film, Malone is not that way. He is against the troops, and he's against the war, and he's against anything that America is doing. His hatred of the troops is based on petty reasons. His girlfriend or something left him for a guy in a uniform, and then to like sort of add insult to injury with how this gag is structured... She just has a thing for uniforms. So it's like it and it's like in this movie, like nobody wins. It's like you're either just a traitor or a whore, basically. Even if you're on the side or right, you're still a piece of shit because you just have a thing for men in uniforms. You know, it just and it kills me because his airplane was so goddamn groundbreaking. I mean, this like I said before, this was his Dracula dead and loving it, but you know, with a rancid side of politics to go with like this stale dated humor, you know? Yeah, that's the thing that I I wrote in my notes is on that, you know, it's just sort of this, you know, sexual jealousy led him astray. And the idea that is that really such a great um, such a great view or such a great idol to have? I mean, uh, if if I was someone who was on on the right politically and I watched this, I think I'd be upset because at times there's just things in here that I think people of conservative politics would be like, what? Like, I'm supposed to like that? I'm supposed to think that? Are you serious? And I think that's also because, I, I mean, this film did not, was not a hit. I mean, with either, with anybody, really. I mean, there was a lot of people on the right that didn't like it, you know? And I think it's because of reasons like that. And there's also, like, towards the end, there's this, this bit where, like, uh, Michael Moore is, is, like, shitting on country music, you know? And it's it's like, well... And it's not really even sort of like contested, you know, it's 
there's like elements here where it's just sort of like prodding your audience slightly that it, but also it's sort of like an agitprop thing for them. But it's it, it's very I guess maybe Zucker thought he was doing a, a South Park thing and he was just kind of like, look, I'm making fun of everybody. Maybe that's what he thought he was doing with this. Well, South Park had already done this with Michael Moore, and I mean, with him and being in uh, Team America World Police, I mean, you're both making fun of the quote-unquote need for America to go in and fix the world's problems and, you know, enforce our view of democracy, you know, on the rest of the world. And they're making fun of that. They're making fun of Michael Moore. They're making fun of Matt Damon. They're making fun of Kim Jong-un. They're making fun of, you know, so many different things. And they're doing it pretty fairly across the board. And it's like that level of humor just, you know, we we can do it with puppets, but we can't do it with real actors with, with this film, apparently. I think maybe he wanted to do that, but it just kind of eluded him, you know, or maybe he maybe wasn't even trying it. I mean, there's... There's some kind of slightly ambiguous things about this movie. When we get to Hollywood and they're giving out these awards for uh, the, these films, it's the movealong.org uh, film awards. And I think we're supposed to really yuck it up because he's getting the Lenny Riefenstahl award. And it's like, yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl, she was a documentary filmmaker for the Nazis. Oh, my God, that's that's so terrible. But yet, you know, I think we can all agree, and I think a lot of people can agree, that Lenny Riefenstahl was one hell of a filmmaker. She just was making films for the wrong people. So, like, yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl, her name is still tainted, but it's not tainted in the way that she could work a camera she was probably one of the best female filmmakers that we had but it's also a way to um equate without saying it directly that leftists are nazis which is hilarious because equating leftists with fascism is is hilarious i mean um i i could understand if it was you know the the stalin film awards or something fine all right let's keep uh, radical left to the to the radical left but it's not even it's not even that i mean th- th- these people don't even understand their political spectrum i guess they missed uh, social studies that week a friend of my a friend of mine pointed this out when i mentioned i, I was doing a, a, an american carol on facebook and he said that zucker when he did airplane, there's that um, bit where they have the um, all the newscasters are talking about the people stuck on the plane, and there's like the conservative editorial guy who at one point goes, "They bought their tickets. They knew what they were getting into." I say, "Let them crash." That I mean, that was a joke then, but nowadays that's that's fucking sucker's political point of view. I mean, it just he went from you know making fun of that to becoming that. And I think that um, he's one of several people who used to do comedy in the pre-9-11 era who have said in interviews that basically September 11th changed their perspective on things. And another one that I'll throw on on the fire with him is Dennis Miller, where Dennis Miller, although maybe wasn't a leftist, he at least gave it to everybody. And then after September 11th, it completely changed. And now I don't find him remotely funny at all. I just don't like his his humor. I I don't get it anymore. I I don't know what happened. I think he was always kind of in the closet though with that because I remember one of his standup specials where he was um, he was like a staunch um, Admiral Stockdale apologist, 
Do you remember that? Like, maybe it was like black and white or something where he's just like, hey, he's a good man. Like he came out for Admiral Stockdale. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Dennis, you were never in the military. How can you criticize it? Well, first, neither was the commander in chief, but that doesn't stop him from running it. <laughs> second, I uh, second, I like the rest of you am paying for it. And third, because my grandfather was the guy Patton slapped in that tent. I know 9-11 definitely changed James Woods. I remember there was a story around that he claims that he was on a flight. I was on a flight. I took it upon myself to go to the flight attendant and ask to speak to the pilot of the plane. The first officer came out. I reported to him that I felt that the four men, and I said, can you look over my shoulder and see who I'm talking about? And he said, uh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I think they're going to hijack this plane. I mean, everything they're doing, and I explained to him these details, which I've been asked to keep private until whatever jurisdiction, you know, uh, whatever trials may take place. Uh, their behavior was such that, uh, that, that I felt they were going to hijack the plane. I also said I'm very much aware of how serious it is to say on an American aircraft in flight the word hijack. So yeah. I'm saying this because I really have reason to believe it's true. As I found out later that not only was, did he make a report, but the flight attendant also made a report of my suspicions to the FAA. When I got home that night, it had been a very turbulent flight. I had said to this woman I'm dating and, and uh, my girlfriend and, and my best friend, I said, that was the flight. And I said, well, aside from the terrorists and the turbulence, it was fine, which was now in retrospect, not such a very funny joke, but it was August 1st and nobody was thinking right. along those lines. He's very much into conspiracy theories and a lot to me, and this is making a huge generalization, but reading like different things on Twitter and Facebook and all these things, all this fake news, for lack of a better term, all of these crazy conspiracy theories like, oh yeah, these were all crisis actors, uh, you know, in Parkdale and all these kind of things. And then we get a scene shortly thereafter in this film where we have Rosie O'Donnell, and I guess they just call her Rosie O'Donnell. I, I don't think they're even like kind no, of... No, they call her Rosie O'Connell. O'Connell, thank you. Thank you. And she is just spewing conspiracy theories like mad like we didn't go to the moon we didn't do this you know she might as well have said that uh you know vaccines give you autism but it's just like crazy all the level of conspiracy that she's at and i'm just like this is really kind of throwing stones in the wrong place because uh she's really into these conspiracy theories and that seems to almost be a, an earmark of the right these days when did she the only time she made a documentary is when she did that that HBO special about the lesbian couples and their kids on the cruise ship. Like they have her in the movie, have like making a documentary, which who oh boy, that whole, like oh, that, that sort of the Christian as if Christian extremists don't exist. Like it's sort of like, like, Oh, these Christian extremists making things harder on the planes, you know, meh, meh, meh. you know, like that sort of, a, I guess, equating it to Islamic extremists and whatever, but which is just, it's, it's fucking stupid. But, you know, I, I, they're getting I don't it's I, was that their way Did they just not know of any other sort of like agitprop leftist documentarian. They just need to, like, put an easy target in there somewhere. So they pick Rosie O'Donnell. She was just a cultural target. I think it would have been a target that the audience would have known. And I think Bill O'Reilly probably specified. He's like, I want to make fun of Rosie Doesn't that just that. discount. If you're trying to do a satire, having like a noted right wing commentator film, doesn't that just discount the whole concept of satire? Because at that point, it's just it's, you know, it's just a promo video for the right when you have Bill O'Reilly in there. I mean, why not to have like Sean Hannity and fucking giant sunglasses, too? You know, I mean, why not just bring them all in? If I was going to say there's a theme for this week's show, 
it's what you just said, sir. Like, so Mike, you should just take that piece of tape of Mr. Mike Sullivan saying, I don't understand that. And just pop that in. Cause I think that that's like, like we're sitting here trying to make sense of this in some sort of logical manner, because to me, all humor and especially satire has to flow from, from a logic. And, and the one that, that I would bring up is that, you know, as I talked about before, it's kind of hard to be irreverent when you have reverence. And another thing it, that's hard to do is to do a satire of something that doesn't take aim at authority. Because satire on its whole is about taking aim at authority. So so for me, this movie would have been like if Jonathan Swift, instead of writing a modest proposal saying, you know, the, the Irish you're suffering is so awful, you should sell your kids for food and here's how to prepare them, would have been if um if it was written the other way where it's the people in authority are saying oh yeah our suffering is so awful and isn't it just terrible how how we're being put under by these irish they're making us look terrible and you know i, I can't even think of how you would how you would formulate basically a, a, a sort of a logic that allows that joke to work i mean it it doesn't work because when when you're supporting authority, it doesn't work as satire. There, there's other elements in here, and we're not there yet, that I just can't wait to get into. So keep going. The Simpsons have been on for way too long, but they've been making fun of JFK and the Kennedys since day one, since Mayor Quimby first showed up. And the Kennedys are an easy target. And here we have JFK coming into the film as basically the Jacob Marley character and just trying to convince Malone that, oh yeah, you you think I'm a peacenik or something, and really I was pro-war, but they don't, again, there's no jokes there. It's, it's, it's the joke of Malone running his face into the screen and having bad breath and these kind of things, but it's not JFK as a womanizer, there's no, you know, back into the left jokes, none of those things. Malone compares him to Reagan at one point, and JFK goes, ah, thank you. He would not be flattered by the Reagan uh, comparison. Ayn Rand didn't even like Reagan. You know, I mean, why would fucking JFK be on board with you're just like Reagan? No, that would never fucking happen. Well, here's one part of where they actually get a piece of Moore's biography correct. Because in the opening of Roger and Me, he talks about as a kid by age six, having memorized the inaugural address of Kennedy. So, so he was a fan of Kennedy, but see, the thing is, is that once again, most liberals think of Kennedy as this great liberal person. He wasn't in many ways. He furthered the war in Vietnam. He did a lot of, he didn't want to pass the civil rights bill. There was a lot of things in Kennedy's, you know, I think if he wasn't killed that he probably wouldn't be seen today as some sort of leftist hero. He just wouldn't. His assassination in particular ways uh, kind of whitewashes his history because we we have a tendency not to think of Vietnam as his war. We have a tendency to think of it as Lyndon Johnson's war and Nixon's war. And we have a tendency to think of not to think of him being unwilling to pass the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act and all of that stuff, too. I mean, that's not often talked about. He wasn't the great liberal that people make him out to be. 
So he's our Jacob Marley, and then soon we're meeting the Ghost of Christmas Past, which is George Patton, played by, again, another Simpsons alum, uh, Mr. Kelsey Grammer, Fraser Crane himself coming out here, or Sideshow Bob, as I prefer to think of him. Basically, I think the only thing that anybody knows about Patton in this movie is the movie Patton, because they just keep making slap jokes, and people are slapping them like crazy, slapping Malone and... Do you think Kelsey Grammer was the first choice for that, for to play Patton? Because I know they went through, what was it? They asked Frank Caliendo, he said no. They asked Wayne Knight, he said no. They asked Larry the Cable Guy, he said no, to play the Michael Moore part. When they finally came, when they finally got to Kevin Farley, he said yes. And on top of it, when he got the role, he told no one in his family he was in the movie. This is true. And because uh, his brother, uh, there's another Farley, asked him, he thought he was depressed because he started gaining weight and he wasn't taking care of himself. And he he couldn't tell him he was an American Carol. So I'm wondering if Kelsey, because I mean, the thing is, when I think of Patton, I do not think of an effete gentleman from the Frasier. You know, I do not think of like Kelsey Grammer. I'm wondering, did they go to someone else before they went to Kelsey Grammer for the role? Well, hell, man, get Arlie Ermey or something. The one thing about Patton that this is what I was talking about, having reverence and irreverence at the same time. There's a throwaway joke towards the end of all of the Patton stuff. That's a joke about his own death, which I don't think most people know where it's like, yeah, that car accident or whatever. I mean, he died from an accident and he's like, hey, watch it or something like that. And it's like, if you don't know Patton's history, you're not going to know that. But as to what you were saying. Yeah, he's trying to do a riff on George C. Scott, because to be honest, most people, most Americans, not smart enough to know anything beyond George C. Scott. So <laughs> Those Hollywood fat cats, man, they're, they're manipulating our sense of history. Those same people that just sit around awards dinners, congratulating themselves and eating lobster while they complain about hunger. Those are the people. Well, I mean, couldn't they here. get John Melius? I mean, I think Melius probably could have done a good George Patton, right? Man, I'd love to see Milius. I actually like Milius. I, you know, I don't agree with his politics, but man, I fucking love Milius. I would, I would have loved to see him in this. Yeah. I think the only requirement for all of these ghosts is that they be at least a foot taller than Michael Malone's character. Because I don't know how tall Kevin Farley is, and I don't know how tall Kelsey Grammer is. But they shoot these guys no matter – and I know Trace Atkins is – apparently he's a giant, according to this film. But everyone is being shot taller than Malone so it's like and they don't make a height joke but if you look at the way that these things are framed we always have these ghosts as much taller than Malone is and it's again I think it's just time to make him look weak and ineffectual but I might be reading way too much into it going all the way back to and I, I this is why it's the ghost of Christmas past taking us all the way back to 1940 and we get to see that people were protesting the war we don't get to see the other side of the coin where we actually got to see some of the people that supported Hitler in the United States. We don't get to hear any of that kind of stuff. So, Well, to be honest, those who would have been protesting the war at that period uh, wouldn't have been liberals. It would have been people such as Father Coughlin here in Detroit who was like, ah, Hitler's fine. You know, like there was plenty of people on the right in that period that uh, had no problem with what Hitler was doing. 
our buddy Henry Ford. Yeah, at, at the same time, a lot of people like to think, oh, well, all of that stuff about the Jews and the rounding up and all of that stuff, that was all over the news. So, of course, people felt good to want to go go fight in, in Europe for that. And actually, a lot of that stuff was underreported or it very little pieces of that persecution of, of the Jews in Europe uh, kind of leaked out in that period. A lot of it came out after the liberation. That was not a motivator for a lot of people to go fight in Europe at the time. You mean the fake story of liberation, the fake story of this thing that the liberals call the Holocaust, the so-called Holocaust? Is yeah, that what you're trying yeah. to say? I'm sorry. I forgot. Again, going back to the craziness of these conspiracy theories. But the one thing that I thought was funny, and I uh, had just seen Darkest Hour, so it was it was fun in my head to think of Neville Chamberlain and all of that in uh, in that film, which obviously is a, a much better film, uh, up against this, you know, oh, you see what happens when you negotiate with dictators, and and they have them playing like it, it's some sort of riff, I guess, on uh, the Marx Brothers or something, you know, where it's they're they're, they're playing a banjo and all this, and you know, kumbaya and all this with a, a fake Hitler, and who is it, Tojo or something? It's supposed to be someone dressed up. Zucker uh, claimed in the commentary that that's a tribute to Mel Brooks. I don't know how, but he, he said it is. That scene, I don't I don't get the connection, but that's how, what he claims. The Ghost of Christmas Past is basically doing the job of the Ghost of Christmas Future as well, because we're being taken to a world where Lincoln didn't go to war, there wasn't a civil war, so now all of a sudden, and this is the this is, of all the logic bending of this film, this is the part that I don't get the most. The, we're taken into this CSA, Confeder Confederate States of America scenario, and we're taken to Michael Malone's plantation where he not only owns slaves, but has fathered uh, many, many mulatto babies, has beaten David Allen Greer many, many times, and then apparently has taught uh, his slaves Hava Nagila, uh, in kind of a, a speaking of a nod to Mel Brooks, I mean, that to me is basically... When you were slaves, you sang like birds. Come on, how about a good old nigger work song? Something like, swing low... Sweet chariot. Swing low, chariot. Don't know that one, huh? Well, how about the camp town ladies? Also, these guys are on the losing end of it, as opposed to the winning end, like Cleavon Little and, and the guys from Blazing Saddles. It's this weird scenario where now he's had a past in this bizarro future version that we're seeing or contemporary version i suppose where slavery is still a viable industry i have no idea the point for the avanagila like i was just sitting there going that makes absolutely no sense it makes no sense whatsoever i mean i understand that zucker or one of the writers or something may be of jewish background fine but why that song like i mean i could understand they had in Blazing Saddles. I mean, it was it was a joke. I mean, it was a jazz tune, and they want to sing a jazz tune, and the and and basically the the, the foreman are like, no, uh, you know, sing the spirituals, you know, the, the swing low, sweet chariot, and things like that. I mean, 
So it's this that that's the mismatch. But here, like I go, that exists on another planet. Why would slaves know Havanagila? That makes no sense whatsoever. There's two things I want to say about this scene. Uh, so I'm guessing if slavery didn't end, no would be nobody would be against it. You know that I, that I don't understand. Why would a guy who's like a dyed in the wool liberal suddenly be be for slavery and own slaves if he really hasn't? If he's still a liberal, I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And second of all, man, was this Gary Coleman's last role? I t- every time I see him, I get sad. This is a guy who was on dialysis. He, you know, whenever he was, whenever he go out, people would just scream, "What you talking about, Willis Adam?" He couldn't do his job as a security guard without being winding up online, being a joke. I mean, and if this is his last role, where he's like, you know, playing a slave, washing, you know, Chris Farley's brother's car, that's a sad way to go. This is a sad goodbye to Gary Coleman, and I feel terrible. I'm wondering if anyone got full scripts of this, if it was written on the set in some manner, if Zucker just called in favors, because I think that if David Allen Greer saw this script or a full scene of this, I don't understand why he would be there unless he absolutely needed a payday, because he is a smart enough guy from a humor standpoint to get it. I mean, in living color was brilliant. And, um, he's also a fellow Detroiter and a, a friend of a friend who I know from the jazz scene here. And he comes to town and he is actually a great blues musician. He plays slide guitar and, and sings. And, and I, I don't get it. I really don't understand why he's in this scene. It's kind of embarrassing to be honest. And uh, it's, I'm scratching my head on that one. I hope one day there's like an oral history of this movie. It's It's got to be fascinating. It's got to be fascinating. I'd love to read an oral history of this movie. This is one of those movies that just breaks your heart so often. Because I understand, and I, I came into this movie with, without blinders on. I knew I was going to see James Woods and John Voight and Kelsey Grammer. I'm surprised Tim Allen wasn't in this film. There are a lot of people, you know, Robert Davi. There are a lot of people who I consider have kind of gone off the deep end with their conservative views over the last few years. And when I see people like Chris McDonald and I see David Allen Greer, I'm just like, why, why are you in this? I feel like Tanya Harding, why, why is this happening? And I, yeah, I just hope that they maybe got five pages and they came in for an afternoon and left and got their paycheck. And I hope it cleared. And that was it. You mentioned that one scene with Christopher McDonald. There's a part in that where it's revealed that I don't know. I don't know how he died, Michael, the Michael Moore simulcrum. But the only thing that remains of him is a giant, like it's a giant rubber ass. And at one point, they put uh, his signature baseball cap on the, the the latex ass. That to me, it's Fountainhead rewritten for Spencer's Gifts customers. It's just so fucking stupid and just so cheap that's that movie in a nutshell just that the, the baseball cap on the play the, the the rubber ass it should have been the poster image is that what you're saying i think it should have been yeah that is just the most beautiful capsule review this is the fountainhead rewritten for spencer's gifts customers that should be on the box the thing that got me was after we go from this weirdo slave scenario we go to what's going on in our colleges today, and we get this whole thing about how colleges are evil. And it's because the professors who teach in college are just frustrated ex-hippies, and they just want to teach 
our children to hate America. They have a song and dance number called 1968, where they just talk about how great 1968 is and that they're stuck there. And the thing that really got me was when they sing about, if you think like we do, we'll give you an A and we'll give you extra credit if you're poor, black or gay. And it's just like, is that really what people think? Do they really think that poor people, black people, and or gay people get extra credit in school? Or is that kind of, are, is this them trying to pick on quotas versus actually, yeah, because quotas are to actually get people in the school. But once you get there, I think you're on your own. You know what this kind of reminds me of is, and we've done it on the on the show before, was we did Bob Roberts. And there's a scene in Bob Roberts that I think kind of encapsulates this idea, but really sort of the the vision in which they take liberalism to be, and therefore these college professors. And it's the scene between Tim Robbins and Lynn Thigpen where she's interviewing him. Uh, Bob Roberts, if you haven't seen the film, he's a, a Senate candidate in uh, Pennsylvania, mock doc. Go see it and then go watch, uh, go listen to that episode of the projection booth. Well, the 60s are, let's face it, a... Uh a dark stain on American history. At no other time has lawlessness and immorality been so widespread. You're speaking of uh, Watergate and our invasion of Cambodia. No. No, I'm not. I, I, I see. I, I'm speaking of you. I'm speaking of lawlessness and immorality with regard to drug use and sexual practice. Excuse me? Disregard in the press for the sacred institutions that have made this country what it is today. Is social protest disregard for our laws and institutions? Certainly it is. And yet it is a guaranteed right in our Constitution. So is burning the flag. Need I say more? Yes, you need say more. Or are we to believe that what Bob Roberts wants to see in America is a compliant and silent public which respects the wishes and actions of its presidents no matter how immoral or illegal? Are you a communist? Excuse me? And once again, this is that going back to conservatives love authority. That it's something that they... Whether they know it or not, they are they are attracted to that idea. And I think in a lot of ways, them saying that universities are stuck in 1968 and all of that stuff in this section really just reinforces that political idea that they have this problem with people mocking authority, which, as I said earlier, it's kind of hard to be reverent and irreverent at the same time. And another reason why it's, it's a beautiful production number in here, um, and it's someone sat down and wrote lyrics in a musical number it didn't do anything for me at all i also um in that scene um michael malone tries to grab like a woman's breasts like because he's invisible you know so he like tries to grab a woman's breast but she sees him and slaps him and i find it funny that they're painting him as a sexual predator when bill o'reilly's in this movie too bill o'reilly at that point had already paid out like most people don't remember this but o'reilly lost his job just recently at fox but i believe it was in 03 or 04 and the reason why i know this was i worked at a radio station where he was our afternoon talk show and if you want to go look it up go look up the falafel tape i'm sure you can find the falafel tape and you can drop that right in the show right now mike but the worst of the whole ordeal the transcripts of the alleged phone sex soliloquies made the rounds on the internet and became America's favorite new amateur porn. I want to take a shower with you right away. That would be the first thing I'd do. Yeah. And I would take that little loofah thing, kind of soap up your back. Yeah. Rub it all over you. I would start to massage your b- 
and you have a really spectacular get in your nipples really hard i would take the other hand with the falafel thing and i'd put it in your wait he has a falafel in the shower he was calling his producer and sexually harassing her and saying, yeah, we, you need to get one of those vibrators that looks like a falafel on the end and all of that stuff, which I guess is a, a, a reference to the Hitachi magic wand. And the smoking gun, I believe, still has his his original case. So Fox paid out and he paid out to this former producer. But, hey, they kept him around. So it's funny, as you were saying, uh, sexual predator in the film, even then, like I said, not now, 15 years later. If you just Google Kelsey Grammer and sexual harassment, you're going to find a lot of stuff. You're going to find some um, uh, statutory rape charges that happened in 95. That's kind of strange, too. So I I haven't Googled uh, Trace Atkins and not to deprecate Trace Atkins' amazing talent, but I had never heard of the guy before this movie and really hadn't heard of him since. So. That's why you're out of touch with America, Mike White. That's right, because apparently all conservative people love country music, which is what this film positions. Trace Atkins is not bad. I worked at a country station my first radio job. Um, Speaking of uh, country music and its shift to the right, there's a great piece that On the Media did um, after the shooting in Las Vegas. Remember when all those people got shot in Las Vegas at a country music show? Um, they went into a history of sort of how country music had actually been counterculture and very blue collar centered and therefore, uh, more to the, to the left. And then over time sort of continues to drift, um, to the right. So country music was kind of anti-establishment for a long time. It was, it was the white version, uh, it was created mostly by record companies as the white version of the blues because they weren't going to sell those race records to white people. So... That's really what it was. So um, had a lot of the same issues going on. Mike, you mentioned the Marx Brothers earlier, and there's a direct lift going on in this musical number to the Marx Brothers, which is in Duck Soup when they're cutting off the, the tassels of the soldiers as they're walking by. And in this, they're doing the same thing to the, uh, the, the mortar board and the tassels and cutting the tassels off as they're handing out the diplomas. That's just a weird callback, especially when you look at Duck Soup. You know, we did an episode on that as well. And you look at Duck Soup and you, you know, that that's such a skewering, speaking to what you're talking about, Rob, as far as authority. I mean, the Marx Brothers were the most irreverent comics. And that was their whole thing, was taking authority figures and, you know, poor Margaret Dumont and just completely uh, skewering them every single time. And we have this callback to that, but it just doesn't work. You know, part of the reason why you have to skewer authority is because authority has the power. So if you're if you're not shooting at authority, then you're shooting at the common people. And that's not cool because the common people got enough struggles. Well, it's weird, too. I mean, this is 2008 when this movie comes out. And at one point, we, we lose Kelsey Grammer for a while. He just goes away. You think that the ghost of Christmas past is done with Malone because the movie kind of just goes from here and we go back into the robert davi story with these two terrorists and davi is the the leader of the cell and them trying to get this movie made and they're going to use it as a as a way to you know bomb america and all this kind of stuff and they say at one point when davi shows up back in the narrative he came up through mexico and he says good thing that fence isn't up yet and i'm just like wow 2008 we're talking about 
So I know now we would say, good thing that wall isn't up yet, but that was kind of weird to think that that was even being talked about at that time. I remember that even being talked about after September 11th. That I remember there was there was a political discussion that they were worried that Al Qaeda was going to come up through Mexico. You know, they didn't say anything about Canada though. But then again, we live in Detroit, so I guess Mexico is more scary to us Detroiters than Canada. That's because most Canadians are white. Come on. Hey, hey, hey. We're fear brown people. And then, yeah, we get into the Bill O'Reilly, Rosie O'Connell, thank you, uh, discussion, um, which just, yeah, that her documentary and the the truth about radical Christians, I mean, yeah, it just, it really, it misses the point, guys. I mean, (laughs) we've, (laughs) we've, we've talked about radical Christianity on this show before, and yeah, sorry, it's a thing. I know people hate to admit it, but it, it's a thing. Yeah, the first thing I thought of in the sequence is, oh, okay, so Eric Rudolph in the Army of God doesn't exist. Now, those who don't remember who he was, he was the guy responsible, actually responsible for the Atlanta bombing in 1996 during the Olympics. It wasn't Richard Jewell, which everybody remembers. It was Eric Rudolph, who was a what? A uh, Christian conservative anti-abortion guy who decided to for some reason, blow up a bunch of people in Atlanta. So there you go. Don't I remember something about abortion clinics being blown up too for a little while? Bill O'Reilly also has a line in this that I love because I feel like he came up with it on the set and pushed for it. He says after Rosie O'Connell has her documentary, he goes, that's not a documentary. That's the Flintstones, which just, it just feels like he came up with that on the set. Cause that feels like, you know, that O'Reilly wit. Oh my God, what a clunker that was. You can talk about the Flintstones all you want, but if we're comparing production value and actual entertainment value between these films, I know where I'm at. I'm, I'm even at the Flintstones sequel, I'm sorry. And then, yeah, we have them, the terrorists are now auditioning people for this new movie, so we kind of get some glimpse into, and this is where I think it would be kind of fascinating, was to actually know what the new script, the narrative that this Michael Malone character wants to do. Okay, Michael Malone now has a chance to make a narrative film. He's got the script written already, and what it's not America Sucks the Big One. I can't remember what the, the is it Shame on You, America? I can't remember what the name of it is, but... We could get a glimpse into his thought process here, but we kind of, you know, we get like one scene of these two characters talking, and then Liz Nielsen shows up in this bizarro thing that we talked about a while ago, where he just comes in, and then he like murders people? Because there's a gag in that where, um, like, Michael Malone goes, he goes, isn't that, and they finish it for him, and it's like this, um, it's like sort of like one of those bullshit, like, oh, that's Muhammad Atma. You know, he's one of our best known actors. And it's I guess the joke is that it's not Leslie Nielsen, I guess. So, I, yeah, it's it's very, very muddled and very it does not make any sense. Yeah. And then Patton comes back and then oh man, poor Dennis Hopper. I mean, come on. We get this weirdo section in here where and this goes on for a long time. Like, I thought the sequence was over, then it continued on because we get this scene in a courtroom where we're suddenly introduced to all these ACLU lawyers and they are all zombies. And so, I mean, talk about just bad messages. So now you have to shoot the ACLU lawyers. And that's what this movie is really thinking is very funny. He's got a point where he hands him a gun and he goes, try it, it's fun. 
you know? So the idea of just random shooting. This was a moment where I was like, damn, they really have no reverence for um, the Constitution at all. Because there are real conservative people who have a lot of problems with the Patriot Act. And in one here, I think there's a line in here where it's like, the Patriot Act's ruining everything, you know? And then there's another scene outside of the courtroom where I think they're, like, going to go on the subway, and they want to search people's bags. And the ACLU zombie, you know, attorneys show up, and they're like, no, here, you can't do that. And therefore, they're allowed to bomb something because they're not allowed to search their bags. When I went to see um, Penn & Teller years ago, and they make no bones about the fact that they're libertarians, which are, you know, uh, d depending on who you want to talk to, Republicans who like to have sex or smoke pot, uh, although Penn says he's never done drugs or never had a drink of alcohol. One of the things that they sold in the lobby, and they would talk about this on stage as a joke related to going back to the air TSA in the airport section, is this is this card. It's about the size of a business card, and it's got the Bill of Rights on it. And number four, <laughs> Amendment four about, you know, illegal searches and seizures is highlighted in red. And one of the things that Penn said to people was, you know what to do? Do me a favor. Put this thing in your shirt pocket and go through TSA. And when you set off the metal detector, go, oh, I got held up by the Fourth Amendment. Sorry. People who are really conservatives and care about things like the Constitution and rights would really have a problem with this section. To Kelsey Grammer's credit, he had problems with that line, enjoy your privacy rights in hell. Um, he didn't – I think they had to either like change it or do something. Be, but I remember, I remember reading about this. He didn't like that – I guess he didn't agree with that scene. I'll give him that much. Like he had, he had an issue with that particular gag. What really kills me is going back to the radical Christian section because that's almost the same thing, but they're talking about it – they're talking about it both sides of their mouth because first they're talking about, you know, oh my gosh, we have to uh, take off all of our stuff as we're going through the line at the airport – but then now the ACLU is showing up and preventing people's bags from being searched as they're going through the line for the subway. It's ironic because I remember after 9-11 and when the ban on liquids came about, one of the most vocal opponents of that whole liquid thing and talking about just how absolutely goddamn ridiculous it was, was none other than Michael Moore. I remember him talking about women having to throw away containers with their breast milk in it. And it's like, yeah, that's ridiculous. And there's that whole thing of like, why is it three ounces? You know, is four ounces going to blow up the plane, but three ounces are fine, but you can have five containers of three ounces, just all of this craziness. And he was the one who was railing against this whole thing. And yeah, he's the one in Fahrenheit 9-11 who's reading the Patriot Act and talking about what a piece of shit it is. And then, yeah, here we have the Patriot Act is ruining everything. So come on, guys, get your fucking politics straight at least. The other thing that makes me sad in this scene is Hopper. And and to me, what Hopper represents in this scene for conservatives would be, we got him. We turned one, you know, because Hopper with Easy Rider represented the anti-establishment. Granted, he didn't have the line that Fonda's character has in Easy Rider, which to me is the line. We blew it. But he's there for that conversation with Nicholson. Well, they're not scared of you. They scared of what you represent to them. 
Oh, we represent to them, man. As somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, what you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. Hopper understood in that period, in the late 60s, I mean, he was the catalyzer. He was the guy that, like, people who were in the counterculture kind of looked to that film. I mean, that, that was huge. And by the time we get to this era, by the time we get to the early 2000s, not only is he in this film, which was probably just a day, you know, for him, whatever, show up and get the check, but he's doing commercials for investment firms. I think it was Ameritrade or E-Trade or something. He's like, and it's got that um, Spencer Davis group behind it. I'm sure you can find the ad on YouTube. But I was just like, wow, what a sellout. That to me represents basically the arc of baby boomers. We went from we're going to destroy the system to, nah, fuck it. We'll just buy into it. He makes that scene a lot less unbearable, though. It, it's always fun to watch Hopper. It, but yeah, it is, it is sad to see him in that because it was, yeah. But I, I did enjoy him in that scene. Plus, to me, I've got this parallel line between him and zombies with Land of the Dead. He's, he's the guy in the tower in Land of the Dead, and he's got that great line. Zombies, man. They creep me out. Which, talking about a social satire, that's a social satire. And we can get into on that later in another episode if you ever want to talk about Land of the Dead. Not only is the Patriot Act bad, but also the Geneva Convention is bad. Oh my God, what are we doing here? Because we've got all these prisoners and it, like we suddenly cut again to another area and there are all these prisoners who are blindfolded and Malone is like, no, you're violating the Geneva Convention. You got to take off their blindfolds. And then, of course, they're all big fans of his because he's so anti-American, which is crazy. And then you get this. I, I wrote in the notes, this is to me like the cum shot of the movie, which is these soldiers who are all praying and then they get called into action. They have to leave the prayer circle and in slow motion, they turn around and, you know, get their guns and go off. And I'm just like, wow, this is the moment in this film. This is America to this film is these soldiers who pray together and fight together. And this is basically the, the ramp up to what I consider the biggest tone problem in just in this entire film which is the george washington scene where they got john voight for you know probably a day and a half well it took him at least half a day to put that fake nose on oh god yeah the makeup on that the, the bad shin he looks like uh, like he should be in robert altman's popeye so we have kelsey Grammer praying to george washington washington showing up and then shaming Michael Malone for being one of the people who's at fault for 9-11 because we get this horrific and now again this should be the ghost of Christmas future I would think though this is our past and we get this shot of ground zero and that Malone is complaining about this uh, church that they're in and how dusty it is and he's like that's the dust of the bodies of 3,000 patriots who you know human beings and great heroes who died 
And Malone is just like, oh, well, this is the fault of our foreign policy. And frankly, I I kind of agree with part of that, you know? So it was tough to really start laughing at this part. And yeah, it's tough to laugh with 9-11 being right in the middle of your movie. But this is the tone problem again. You want to bring reverence into a film where you're trying to be irreverent. The tone just doesn't work. I can't understand how someone would continue to laugh, 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 and then all of a sudden be like, oh, yes, this is very solemn. Like, don't laugh at this scene. I think they cap it off in the most tasteful way they could um, after the whole dust of 3,000 people. Michael Malone smashes his head off the Liberty Bell several times. So I think that's probably the most best and tasteful way to end a, 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 a 9-11 memorial. Yeah, and uh, another thing that's in here, there's a line that Voight's character has as George Washington, is that you abuse freedom of speech. And he says that to the Malone character, which, again, much like the Fourth Amendment problem and the, you know, the, the Patriot Act issue, therefore, this guy who's a, a documentarian who they obviously don't like, he is abusing freedom of speech wow not surprising john voigt wrote all his own dialogue for that scene right and and i just find it hilarious and and here's where you know they'll be like oh okay leftist it's really nice to hear a slave owner just rant about freedom it really you know it just makes me laugh we still are contending with the history of of the people that founded the government of this country and their and their pasts what are you going to do next rob you're going to take down all the george washington statues i like jefferson okay Jefferson is probably, to me, the most important of all of them. You know, you still got to contend with, with his background and his issue. My neighbor and I were discussing gun control. He said, I bet if you ask the founding fathers what they thought about gun control, they wouldn't like it. And I responded, I bet if you ask the founding fathers what they thought about gun control, they'd respond, what's this I hear about women voting? <laughs> and who's that in the White House? <laughs> Is that one of Thomas Jefferson's kids? There's a certain amount of rat turds, like in this film, that's in the food. And you just got to be willing to accept it. Just eat around it. If you want the good stuff, you have to balance it off off uh, the, the problematic issues. Just put it that way. Well, if you're going to do tone, and we're talking about tone a lot during this episode, you can do a movie like Scrooged, where you can be funny, but when you get to the end, and it's the ghost of Christmas future, the ghost of Christmas future is the most scary part of any Christmas Carol adaptation. And it's usually the angel of death. They usually don't say anything. They have the souls of all these people inside of them, yada, yada, yada. You get those terrifying, like those those faces coming out of the, the angel of death and Scrooge and all of these things. And you get the moment where... The person breaks down and they realize that they were wrong. And basically, you know, the only way to make a, a rat, a rich fat cat be good is to scare the shit out of them. Is, is after you point out all of their flaws is, is basically the moral of, of, of a Christmas carol, I, I believe. I think that's what the cliff notes say. But in, now we have this in the middle of the goddamn movie. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. You know, like the death of Michael Malone should be in the tombstone that that goes right along with 9-11. If you're going to lay all this stuff at his feet, because they keep basically saying 
Michael Malone, the filmmaker in this film, has fostered such a anti-American fervor, along with all of these other Hollywood a-holes like the Kevin Sorbo character in here and all of these other people, that they have made 9-11 possible and have made this this whole thing possible. So go ahead, just lay this all at his feet at the end and make him pay for this, make him make him contrite, make him make him sorry for this. Right. It's the godless left again that is responsible for 9-11. And on top of it, and this is a little this is another little dig that they put in there, and, and not a lot of people are gonna get it based on the date that's on the tombstone. Did you get it? I saw April twentieth. And what is April twentieth? Oh, oh yeah, okay. Do you know what April 20th is? That's when I smoke a lot of pot. Well, it, it could be seen as that, but the other one that are historical is it's Hitler's birthday and it's also Columbine. I didn't even pick that up, so they 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 actually do compare him to Hitler in this movie. Wow, okay. Yeah. And it goes also, that far. Yeah, and, and also to dig as well at his gun movie, Columbine happened April 20th, 1999. So, so again, equating the left to Nazis, equating the left to Hitler. Although I think that's too subtle, though. I mean, <laughs> I don't. I, I didn't pick it up. You know, I, I. I don't know. Maybe I got distracted by all the latex asses with baseball caps on them. You know, I. I... <laughs> Ghost of Christmas Present is there for one scene, and then we go Ghost of Christmas Future almost immediately, and getting to see what Hollywood looks like after the terrorists win. It because again we're going to an alternate future here this is supposed to be some funny shit like victoria's burka is supposed to be hilarious well, first of all it's called hollywood is called bin laden city how lazy is that what is chicago called chemical alley township that is well, so fucking lazy i think that it's probably a little dig at vietnam because there's another dig at it later towards the end of the film and i'll bring that up but calling it ho chi minh city right you know fall saigon so yeah, there's a statue of Malone because, again, he helped really bring about this, you know, terrorist world that we live in now. And this is the future. <laughs> this is the future the radical left wants, apparently, is that the terrorists win and everybody is wearing burkas in Hollywood. I also like how the uh, statue is also holding a giant party sub. Why just can why not continue the easiest fat jokes in the world, even in statue form? You know, I mean, keep keep just kicking that straw man, you know. And then we had a joke that actually made me laugh again when they go back to Michigan and it's completely burned out. And it looks like, you know, Raccoon City after the, the zombies have taken over. And he's just like, ah, yeah, the, would recognize this place anywhere. And I'm like, yep, OK. Which, to be honest, is another Zucker brother favorite going back to the late 70s. Because when I was a kid and the first time I saw Airplane, that was the first time I ever heard anyone use Detroit as a punchline and a joke. Later, when I saw a Kentucky Fried movie, there's two of them in Kentucky Fried movie. Take him to Detroit. No, no, not Detroit. No, no, please. Anything with that. The Zucker brothers have always had it in for Detroit. They've made a lot of jokes about us over the years. I'm still kind of pissed off at them for that, but I still love Airplane anyway, and I always will. And, yeah, we get that poor, that horrible, the ass with the baseball cap and poor Chris McDonald. Yeah, let's just kind of move past that and go to 
the Fourth of July rally. So I guess now the Angel of Death, the Ghost of Christmas Future, is done, and we don't get the whole you know waking up in the morning, you there, boy, what day is it? That kind of stuff. Instead, we're taken to the Fourth of July rally, and Jimmy Carter shows up at the Fourth of July rally. Apparently, Jimmy Carter is the only bad president that we've had, so we're going to make fun of him in this. Carter represents a weak president in the mind of most right wing people because um, not only did he not go in and get the hostages when the Iranian hostage crisis happened, but he also told everyone to wear a fucking sweater and turn down the heat during the oil crisis, which, of course, those sweaters make everyone look like a pussy. So uh, the folks on the right never forgave Jimmy Carter for that. But the other thing that's in here, too, is, I, you know, like how I was talking about how how the right has this reverence for authority and authority figures. And in a lot of ways, this whole thing where it's like, we love Michael Malone, we love Michael Malone kind of chat thing is just this sort of the idea that the folks on the right believe that the folks on the left play into this same sort of, you know, we need a, a strong leader to lead us forward. I, I think that a lot of people who who are on the left, I don't think kind of sign up for that kind of cult of personality stuff that much. At least I don't. I mean, during the past election, I mean, there was all the people that were into Bernie and I'm just like, I'm more of an ideas guy. Whoever's got the best ideas, I don't really care, you know, who looks good or who's got, you know, bad hair or whatever. That doesn't excite me. Is that Fred Travellina as Jimmy Carter? Did anyone catch that? I think that's impressionist Fred Travellina, although I'm not sure. Uh, well, first of all, the, the, in the scene, he's like he's talking about how he somehow convinced these generals and everybody to surrender to the um, to, to the enemy and all that. And I'm thinking throughout the scene, I'm, I'm surprised they had enough restraint, not Carter sucking Barney Frank's dick as he was as he was like uh, uh, making these gestures towards surrendering. Also, how grateful is Jimmy Carter for the existence of Hillary Clinton? Now the right has like an easy punchline for everything. I mean, for how many years was Jimmy Carter the easy, you know, conservative funny man's punchline for every stupid fucking joke? Yeah, that was Fred Travelina, and I just realized that Kevin Sorbo is playing a character named George Mulrooney, so I guess he's supposed to be George Clooney because he was making the uh, Joe McCarthy thing, uh, because apparently it's unfair to make fun of Joe McCarthy these days. I was not sad to see Paris Hilton in this movie, by the way, because this is what I expect out of her. I was kind of weirded out when Malone goes into a bathroom and all the ghosts show up in the bathroom and Bill O'Reilly shows up in the bathroom as well. And like, not a bathroom, but a porta potty. I kept thinking of like Larry Craig. I was kind of hoping he would show up and have a wide stance or something. The, the other thing with this scene too is that you know he brings him to this there, there's the counter rally, which is uh, Trace Atkins is playing for the troops. And the troops are all, I guess, shipping out of my dad's birthday, which is July 5th. So the next day, they're all shipping out, right? So um, so they're going to have this big country music festival. And um, and one of the things that, that happens in here is that the, the Moore character has a change. He, like, realizes his errors, right? But the problem is, is I don't believe they set that up enough for me to believe it. That he would all of a sudden go, oh, my God, I've been wrong so long. Oh, you know, because really that's the point of a, of a Christmas Carol. That's the point of Scrooge. That's the point that Dickens is making is, is that Scrooge is, is all fucked up. And then after 
all of these encounters and he sees the error of his ways, he has this profound change and he becomes a profoundly changed human being. And that doesn't happen in here. It's just sort of like, oh, okay, I guess I, I, I guess I should save these people in this, you know, cause these, I know these terrorists are going to blow it up and. Because otherwise he probably wouldn't. Are we supposed to assume that? Like, <laughs> otherwise he'd find out that there was a bomb going off at this concert and he would just let it happen? Maybe? I mean, to be honest, if you want to make a political statement, that would actually be an even worse political statement. Would be that he lets the bomb go off. He doesn't know that his nephew was there. And then he's like, oh my God, my nephew died. And then he's, and then he has this soul searching moment where he's got to come to grips with things and then maybe he goes those fuckers i can't believe that you know they did that to me and then and then that changes him you know because that's really the only thing that i can see because he has no investment in anything he's basically a very nihilistic character he has you know at least in the way he's written in the film i i don't understand i don't know exactly what he stands for and what he doesn't except he stands for everything that the people who who wrote it or the you know the people who are interacting with him uh, stand for and that's it he's he's just a counter he's just a counterweight that's all he is there's no emotion there if his nephew got killed then he gets stuck with those three awful kids can we talk about the kids i specifically wrote this down i and i wrote it in the notes as scene analysis and cruelty by the same director that was the note that i wrote there's a scene that's supposed to be played up where um his nephew i guess has a brood he must have like six or seven kids that all have maladies like, I can't remember how many they pull out, but there's a lot of them. After you have two that are sick like that, quit having kids. Get those tubes tied, buddy. It's neither here nor there. We're not getting into that. ZPG. I'm going to talk about a scene in this film and a scene in Airplane featuring a sick kid and how they're played and how they're played differently. Same director, same writer. So, so the sick kids in here are used for slapstick. So we're supposed to laugh at them being on crutches and falling over. And they're really used to show how cheap and uncharitable of spirit the Moore character is, and by extension, all liberals. Because the whole idea is, is that, you know, Uncle Michael's supposed to get me a new liver, and Uncle Michael's supposed to get me new eyes so I can see, and Uncle Michael's supposed to do this, and Uncle Michael's supposed to do that. And he promised to pay for my treatment. So so the whole idea is to just show how, how cheap and, and uncharitable he is. And we're supposed to laugh at the fact that the kids are falling over and on crutches and, you know, one's in a, you know, breathing machine and, and all of this other stuff. Now, now let's look at a scene in Airplane where the stewardess is playing guitar and singing. I'm sure you remember the scene. And as she's playing, she's swinging the neck of the guitar and she's knocking the IV out of the young girl. Now, the laughs really come not from the sick girl, although she is making some faces and her mother's plugging the IV back in. The the humor comes from the obliviousness of the stewardess doing this to someone and the rest of the people around who are so enthralled with singing along with the song. So this is how he's he's gone from a scene where it's not inflicting it's not inflicting cruelty on a kid for a joke in in airplane it's about obliviousness to let's inflict cruelty on a kid because that'll be funny to watch little Timmy fall over with his arm you know his uh, his crutches that's hilarious This movie has more endings than The Lord of the Rings because we got God, there's so many things. So, you know, you, we expect that we have the disarming of this bomb that's going to blow up the concert. Okay, cool. 
He looks out in the audience. He sees the ghosts of soldiers that have fallen before. Okay, good. That's a good place to end it. But then we have Patton coming back. And, you know, what can I do to help out America? Well, you can stop being a big big of a pain in the ass and start being a pain to the terrorists. Okay, great. And then we go to a voiceover from Leslie Nielsen. We bring that back. Okay, that's a good place to end. Nope. Now we see Malone and Timmy are, for whatever reason, they're they're on a set that's in the middle of the desert. Why is it, and it's like a JFK movie. Why is it? Was he going for like some experimental Jodorowsky type JFK movie? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I need you to bury the first uh, toy that you ever got in a photo of your mother, and then you can be a man. And then they meet the monks. That's a good place to end. But yeah, instead there's the message that people actually want to see movies that say good things about America. Because that's the joke from earlier in the film is, you know, what about this incident? What about this? What about uh, that horrible Brian De Palma film that I saw Tiff years ago? What about this one? What about that one? Yeah, no, no, no. We want to see movies that say good things about America. And is this supposed to be an example? <laughs> So, so the Malone character becomes accepted, right? He becomes, after, like I said, the supposed change of heart he has, he becomes accepted. So Trace Atkins is like, welcome to the real America, is what he says to him, right? At the concert, after the, after the terrorists are foiled. Okay. So he's like, I still got time. He runs down to the docks to see his, his nephew off. And he's like, I'm, you know, forgive me. I'm sorry. And it's like, I'm proud of you. And then it said, uh, I, I guess he's re-upped because he had been there before to Iraq and Middle East. And and he goes, yeah, we found your DVDs in one of Saddam's palaces. And he's like, oh, 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 that's funny. And he goes, you know, come back safe. And he goes, he goes, this time uh, our side will win, which is an obvious dig at Vietnam because people on the on the right have always felt that if it wasn't for those damn protesters – that Vietnam would have been won, that, you know, we could have won Vietnam if we would have taken the gloves off and did everything we could. We could have won that war. Did we get the win this time? But instead, it was those those damn liberals back home and, you know, everybody was so, you know, lily-livered and they really should have went in there and they should have let Nixon maybe even use nukes and we could have won that war. How come we didn't push those rice eaters back to the Great Wall of China and take the first brick, brick, brick and nuke them back into the fucking Stone Age River? How come? Tell me why? Say it! Say it! So that's a little dig at, you know, my dad and his friends. That's always nice. And it's it's always nice to do that as well. And then, like, one of the last jokes that's in there is, you know, as I said, the whole thing with Patton. Oh, hey, you got in that accident. <laughs> yeah, have you thought about stem cell research? Hey, watch it. And then now he's making a documentary for America. Okay? So he's making a documentary for America. And what's really nice is that it appears that the right are, are okay with redemption. Because instead of these guys who helped to make the terrorist plot happen, who were trying to blow up the concert and probably would have ended up in Gitmo or worse... They're his assistants in making the documentary. Of course, the movie ends with the book ends, as you noted, with Leslie Nielsen. And, and the line that's supposed to let us all off the hook, in case we had a problem with any of the politics in the film, is, hey, it's just a story. Cue. That's the end. So it, it, it doesn't even believe in its own politics 
for for it to end on such a mush note to go, hey, but it's just a story. Because the movie's you know? just saying. The movie's just asking questions, you know? That's all it's doing. God, I can't stand when people say, just saying. You know, a lot of people say. Let that sink in. Is the JFK in Malone's movie the ghost of JFK we saw earlier? No, it's actually JFK. He's never died. Okay, okay. They saved JFK's brain. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-writer and producer of An American Carol, Myra Sokoloff, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. From, from page to screen. To screen. So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas now, that just makes me want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, Who's Prince? Who's he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. Hey, hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah, thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. And even before you were writing and producing An American Carol, what is your background? Writing is the center of everything. I went to Boston University and I have a BA from from there in philosophy and religion because I wanted to know how people think, you know, how they make their decisions and it comes from what philosophy they hold. But then I went right to Wall Street and worked for Chase Manhattan and I learned about investing because that's what my father did. But then I left uh, after a few years and I wanted to go back to graduate school. I felt there was more that I wanted to learn about my own faith. I took a master's degree at Hebrew Union College, which is the Reform Judaism's rabbinical seminary. I went there for two years. So from that time, I've, I've either, I worked for, as a principal for a while, but then I wanted to do other things and I moved to New York. But from that time to now, I still teach. Hebrew school on Sunday. So I always keep my hand in it because I feel I ha- I don't want to waste the knowledge and it's not right. You know, I studied for it. So anyway, but I was interested in other things. So I moved to New York and I worked for Andrew Stein, who was a Manhattan Borough president. So I've worked in city government in New York. That's how, how I know how the system works. <laughs> and from that, and that's why Donald Trump is not unfamiliar to me. His demeanor and everything is totally familiar, but I realize that the rest of the country is not used to seeing New Yorkers that way. Then I worked on presidential campaigns and I worked on um, Senate campaigns. Then I decided I worked on a big TV special, David Wolper and the 100th anniversary of the Liberty Weekend, Statue of Liberty. I loved it so much. I was doing press and getting interviews and stuff and writing stuff. The producer said, you know, you have to be in California if you want to to do this kind of work. Occasionally, there's a big thing in New York, but not all the time. So anyway, I decided I was going to pack up and move to California. (laughs) And that's where I went. And I worked with my connections from New York. I worked on a lot of campaigns there and then kind of sidled into the entertainment part. That's quite a, a vast and varied history. I know. I'm not boring. I've done a lot of interesting things. The Liberty Weekend thing was seven TV specials run by David Walper. And Reagan was there the first time I was on a set with the president, and he uh, lit the statue for the 100th anniversary. So that is where I went through my first Secret Service check. What is that like? Well, they run your name and your birthday through the FBI computer to make sure you, you don't have anything on your record. And I don't remember if we had to do fingerprints, but I know you can't get a Secret Service tag to be in the same site with the president, whoever he is, unless you've been run through the FBI computer. Tell me, how did An American Carol come about? Now, you said that you had worked on some stuff before you did this, uh, including, of course, that that special what was kind of the stepping stone to get you to this place where your name is you know, one of the three writers listed on the project? One of the things was that I belonged to a group uh, run by Gary Sinise, the actor, and it was called Fr- Friends of Abe, FOA. And those of us who had been Democrats, but were now Republicans, or at least conservative, we couldn't talk openly in Hollywood. As you can see now, you're seeing it now, but I'm telling you it existed (laughs) a long time ago. The um, 
prejudice. What it was, was that we would meet for lunch and we would, you know, it, it was like a secret society. We didn't talk about it that much. It's only been talked about the last couple of years. But that's where I met other people who had been Democrats, but were Republicans, and they can't talk about it on the set. They can't talk about it and let it let other people know. And it goes on now. I mean, people are talking about it more. So I would listen to these stories. This is when Bush was president, 2004. I'd listen to these stories of these poor actors who would have to sit there in um, makeup rooms and the makeup chairs with other actors, and they're all in Bush derangement syndrome. And the poor conservative actor can't say a word, you know, just nod and everything, because there was no argument. You had to be on that one side. So we all knew each other. I heard they came to me and said, you know, David Zucker, who made Airplane and, and Naked Gun, and he was doing a scary movie. He said, you know, he wants to write a letter to Barbara Boxer because he's no longer a Democrat. And she keeps writing to him because he gave her a lot of money over her other races. So she says he wants to compose a letter and he needs some help from somebody who's a good writer. So I thought of you. So they gave him my number and he they gave me his number and I called him and uh, we set up an appointment and we started talking about, you know, how to write to her and everything. And then it became a bigger discussion. He said, you know, I really wish I could do something, something for the campaign, you know, something for Bush. And I don't know what to do. I said, well, you know, you can make a um, a commercial. And he said, would they let me? Those days, that was, you know, everybody knew it was a campaign and the internet was only becoming important right at that time. So I said, yes. I said, we could write and produce a commercial and then we'd get somebody to finance it, to put it on TV, because at that time, TV was the only thing that was, uh, you know, good for advertising. So that's what we did. We wrote a commercial together. Um, he put in some money and we were getting donations from other people. <laughs> and, um, and then we filmed it in one day. And then the Club for Growth came to us and said they saw it and they would like to um, finance it and put it on TV. So that's how we became famous for doing that. So then we were famous. And then in that world, because he wasn't, I said, you know, we can write a movie. You know, uh, we could make up a story that says what we want to say and and then try to get it financed and write the movie. Meanwhile, we can do these commercials. So that's what we did. The RNC called us and in the 2006 election, it was a midterm. So they asked us to do two subjects, one on uh, foreign affairs and one on taxes. So we wrote two scripts. The one with we did on foreign affairs, we did it on Madeleine Albright and Kim Jong-un, the father of the guy that's running North Korea now. He was in charge. So we did a funny thing about them because we found out they called me from Washington and they said, if you want the Democrats back, this is what you get. Bill Clinton sending a signed basketball from Michael Jordan to the dictator of Korea. And I said, you're making this up. You can't be serious. And they said, no, no, it really happened. I'm going to send you the, the clips on it. So they did. And David wouldn't believe it either. I said, listen, this is perfect. This is perfect. So we got a, a woman who look, looked like Madeleine Albright because she came, went to North Korea. They didn't want pictures of it, but they knew that it happened. So we built it on that. 
then the RNC called us and said, some of our members on the board think it's kind of over the top. So we, we can't, you can't put our name on it. I said, wait, that's the best commercial. You know, the other one, the taxes is good, but you know, we'll put on the, R, the taxes one with our RNC, but we can't put our name on the Madeline Albright one. It's too crazy. This is what they told us. The next morning, in surprise, because I don't know how these things get done, and nobody was telling me, it was on Drudge Report, when Drudge was just big only for a few years, and it, it crashed the site. So in a way, it went all over the place. You know, it was bigger than anything we, you can still find it if you look up Madeline Albright, and, and so we did that, and um, meanwhile, we're sitting down trying to write a movie. And we didn't know what to write. We were thinking, maybe we should make it a family, you know, and the daughter, they're, they're left wing, but the daughter falls in love with a, a soldier and he's going off to Iraq and this causes a crisis in the family. And so we wrote things like that and we were just, it didn't, didn't make it, you know, it wasn't interesting enough. So then I thought, why don't we... You spoof other things. So let's find something to spoof and everybody will know what it means. You know, they'll get it. We decided on American Carol to take Christmas Carol. So who is going to be our Scrooge? So the, the most, the most obnoxious guy in politics was Michael Moore. I mean, he was a great character. So he became our Scrooge and we built the whole thing around him that he saw the light you know, that somebody brought him these spirits, came to him and explained stuff to him and showed him his past and everything and explained it to him. And then he saw the the light. A lot of it had to do with the military. It really was because people hated the Iraq war. They hated anything military. So it, it was, and we felt awful, you know, about that. It should never be that way because they did that to the Vietnam veterans. It wasn't their fault. So anyway, so we created a story. We made Michael Moore have a, um, well, Michael Malone have a nephew. And I named him Josh because my, my nephew was going into the Navy. <laughs> so we made him Navy and that's how we did it. And we got Kelsey Grammer's Patton, our favorite general, John Voigt, who played George Washington, Trace Atkins, because we wanted to use country music because it was the most patriotic. How did you go from just, um, writing it to actually being a producer as well. I can't say just writing it, by the way, because that's a major part of it. Nothing exists unless the written word starts everything. Well, we were the only people together, you know, uh, David and I were doing this. And what we were doing was talking to people who could get access to financing. And we found that, of course, no studio would back something like this. David was a famous, famous comedy director and writer and our the guy who was closest to us who was the producer was Steve McAvity who had worked with Mel Gibson for years at Icon so it wasn't that we didn't have people that were well known in the business they were well known but because of the of the content he said to Steve don't have the blank to do this we just don't we can't do it so that's what was going on. So we never got financing from any uh, studio. And it wound up that a conservative woman in the Midwest gave us a check. And we did it just with her money. 
that's really how Hollywood is and was at that time. But we got it done anyway. The third writer on, on the film, Lewis Friedman, can you tell me about him? He's a comedy writer, and he was kind of well-known in New York because he was doing, I think he did award shows and stuff, you know, that David knew him. And usually with comedy movies, they bring on another writer or writers, sometimes five writers, to add jokes. See, when you look at a comedy, like, you know, a scary movie, it's how many jokes are in the scene. Not to me, but to that, that that's how they do it. And that's what... Um, gave David his past success. So that's how he did it. So he just came in right at the end. How did you and David work together? What was your relationship when you were writing this? Well, we would sit across from each other and, you know, write stuff. Eventually we got to a a situation where he, he's used to writing it. They would put it up on a screen. We'd have somebody type it. So back and forth, we would say, yeah, he should say this. And then she comes back and says that, you know, like, We had to do it that way. So they would type it out and it would be in the computer. So then when we come back to it, so we worked like we tried to work every day, but then he was making another movie. I would work on, you know, I was here in California trying to get financing and stuff. So that's how we did it. We came up with a story and we filled in the blanks of the story. And, you know, each time something would happen, you know, we'd add some, something and um, it would be even better. So once we got that $30 million check, then we could make the movie. (laughs) Were you on set every day when the movie was being made? Yes. I was determined that I was going to be on set. I wanted to see everything. And what was amazing, making a movie is collaborative. You have to have all these other people because you can't do everything. Uh, You know, we only wrote and David directs, but everything that I would write, it was amazing to me. I would see, I put one line saying, and the church was filled with smoke and, and haziness, you know, like that was the line. And then I'd come into this church, which they um, rented, and it was filled with smoke and haze and everything. And that's, you know, the, the, um, the effects guys. I mean, they made it look exactly you know, what I wrote. And that was always amazing to me because they were so skilled. They did it so fast. It's like seeing what you wrote right there in front of you. So I am totally grateful to all of the people that um, made it come alive because I only did the words. Going back a little bit, if you don't mind, you, you said that you originally were a Democrat and then you switched to being a Republican. Can you tell me a little bit about that? First of all, New York was totally Democrat. I don't even know. The two Republicans I knew was uh, Bill Green, who is a congressman from the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and Roy Goodman, who was a Republican state senator from Upper Manhattan. They would come to every meeting I'd be at. So, you know, we would sit and talk. Those were the two Republicans. Otherwise, it was all Democrat, and they would all be fighting with each other. You know, they weren't fighting the the Republicans because they weren't an issue with them because they had total control. But I began getting upset with them with the Bill Clinton thing. I was working for Barbara Boxer. It was the Paula Jones situation. And I remember sitting around with a bunch of women who were very, very liberal on abortion and, and women's rights and everything, which I, you know, I agreed with them on women's rights. 
we were talking and I said, you know, I just have this sick feeling that if this was a Republican president, we'd all be marching on the White House, you know, to tell him to resign because, this is, you know, he he used his power as I think he was attorney general at the time in Arkansas over this woman and we wouldn't be supporting him. And they all shook their head and they said, yes, we know. And we all feel bad about it. And they said, but he supports our issues. So we have to just shut up. So that's really what it was like. We knew we shouldn't have supported him, but we did. So it came to a point where I stopped going to events with the president, you know, like he would come into California to campaign with Barbara. So I said, I don't want to work on that event. I don't want to go. So it was little by little. And then after 9-11, I, came, I had lunch with a friend of mine who was the head of the Republican Jewish coalition. I didn't even know that existed. And he was a good friend. And I leaned over and I said, you know, I support the president. He said, what? <laughs> I support the president. And I don't know what to do about it. I don't know any other people, you know, except you. So he started taking me to events and I saw that there were a lot of Jews that supported the president and I wasn't alone. And uh, so it developed from there. And David was a member of that too. He, he also had been connected with that. So they were very supportive of us. You're all shocked by this. I know I can see, I can tell. Oh, the, the idea of, People being afraid to speak their mind is always a terrible thing. So you're telling stories of like, yeah. you know, actors who are in makeup rooms and right. unable to to say what they feel in their hearts, and it's just it's a bad situation. So it's interesting to 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 see that that was the case. It was the case. One of our friends who was in the Army Reserve. He worked on films too. He was an actor, but sometimes he worked as a PA, and he was about to get a promotion on the set of uh, to be something higher than he was. And then they found out he was in the army reserve and he was about to leave to go to wherever it was. And they took it away from him because of that. They didn't want anybody in the army. So it's real. With friends of Abe, I'm assuming, and I know it's a dangerous thing to assume, but I'm assuming that Abe is Abe Lincoln. Right. He was a Republican president. Yeah, he was a Republican president. Because I know a lot of members of that actually ended up being uh, the actors in the film. Yes. Yes, we used them. We, you know, they were our they, friends of Abe is are people in the entertainment industry. So it was a good way we would call Gary Sinise and for recommendations. And, you know, we were a tight group. Because we knew, we felt we didn't want anybody to do a film that they didn't believe in. But there was one young actress, I don't remember her name, she didn't come on the film, but her lawyer told her not to do the film, not to have that on her resume. What was it like working with Leslie Nielsen? Oh my God. <laughs> I would, you know, he did it for David because he was a raging liberal. I mean, he, there was no way he, was a conservative, but he did it as a favor to David. So I got to meet him and to talk to him. And it was, it, you know, he was very old. He did, he died soon after that, like about a year or so later, people stayed around him, you know, to make sure he didn't trip or something. You know, he, he was a frail, but he had such a comic sense about him. He just, 
it, it was amazing to be around him. So I talked to him and I told him, you know, I worked with David and, and at later David came over. He said, did you meet her? He said, yes, I met her. And she has very good diction. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. It was so cute. So I always remember that. (laughs) I have pictures of me with him and John Voigt was great. I was going to ask what it was like working with Dennis Hopper. He was a little quiet. He was not talkative. So I can't say, usually I, I sat around with the actors for a long time, but with him, it was, I think it was just one day on the set and he was kind of quiet. He died about a year, less than a year later, I think. Not only is this movie a movie and a, and a parody, but then also you have a, uh, a knockout musical number right in the middle of it with 1968. Can you tell me how that came about and, and did you uh, always plan that you would have this big musical number in the middle of the film? Well, we wanted to do the colleges because we felt that, and obviously that's true. I mean, people now feel that, that, that uh, colleges are filled with professors from who grew up in, you know, in 1968 was their year in college. And that's where they get their ideas from. And that's true. I mean, I can say it being a Democrat, it was all about the Vietnam War, except there wasn't any Vietnam War. You know, it was anti-military, anti-Department of Defense, anti-anything, whatever, whoever the president was. So our ideas were formulated during that time. I mean, I I went to BU and they took over the uh, administration building on the same day that they did at Berkeley. I didn't do it, but because my father would have taken, you know, taken me home. <laughs> he wouldn't have stood for that. Martin Luther King died that year and, and Boston uh, sent in the National Guard to Roxbury, which was the black section, and because they were afraid of riots. So we thought it was wrong because, you know, the kids, because they were in mourning. So we had a march about that, but they had TV cameras and I was trying to stay out of the way because I knew my father would not like it you know, to be so vocal, but that's where we come from. So when we decided to do this thing about the colleges and Kelsey Grammer sets it up, you know, that they're teaching kids to be against their own country, then we, we wanted to have a musical. So, you know, David tried out a few composers and everything and they, they sent us stuff. I had written some stuff. I had, you know, some lyrics way back when we said we should have a song, because that's what we'll remember it. But it was basically what we believed about 1968, since we were both from 1968, and we knew it. This was real. We weren't, like, making it up. And you can see it came true. (laughs) We were right. How was the film received when it came out? Well, anybody who... um, we let show it. I was just looking at the New York Times and they hated it, of course. And they hated it because it was saying things that they didn't believe and they didn't think it was funny. And also they could make the joke with that it's just like David Zucker's other films, you know, stupid and, you know, but they weren't, they didn't want to talk about the real issues of it because that was not, they couldn't even imagine that we'd make, no, nobody wanted, I, I, we had to keep it from distribution ahead of time because we knew it, they would destroy it. So now it's sort of like a cult film. Can you tell me about the, the way that you went about marketing the movie? We had a firm, forget what the name of it was, but the company 
um, you know, a media, media company, and they took over distribution. So they did it. The only slogan I remember was that, you know, laugh like your life depends on, on it. They had posters with, you know, a Michael Moore type character. I mean, we were going for comedy. You know, we were saying you can watch this and laugh anyway. But we found out that real liberals couldn't do that. <laughs> it wasn't funny to them. What did you do after the film came out? Because I know you ended up going to work at Breitbart and you worked there for quite a few years. Are you still working for them? No, I didn't work for them. I wrote, you know, articles. They would want articles from me because of that I had made the movie. So they were taking a lot of opinion pieces. So I would, I was always able to get my opinion in there. And I knew Andrew Breitbart. But then they changed their formatting in the last couple of years in that it's mostly news, um, not opinion pieces. And they're way much bigger. But, you know, I was glad I have those articles to show. I still on their archives. So the idea of making a movie, as I said, it was very collaborative. And part of me just wanted to do something by myself. You know, I mean, like I had these millions of people around me all the time for years. Anyway, I wanted to uh, write. And I started writing after I think Obama was elected. And I didn't want to write about him or anybody political. I just wanted to write about how people's lives are affected by the decisions politicians make. You know, like it's not in a vacuum. So I was affected by Benghazi and everything, but I wasn't going to write about Benghazi. So I made up characters and I, I made up a tragedy and. And I know enough about how government works and how politics works that it was very realistic about, you know, what goes on. So anyway, that was my first shot. <laughs> I worked on a second one. I haven't finished that yet, but I've got to talk. Actually, I have an appointment with an agent. So I don't know whether I want to write a totally new book or continue with this book because there's so many good characters in it. I like writing a book by myself. It was great. I have yet to take the plunge on that, and I have to ask you just because I'm curious, how long did it take you to write that? Less than a year. I think I did it in six months. But, you know, I'm used to writing fast because I had to write articles and I had to write um, commercials and stuff. I'm used to writing fast, and I try to make it like scenes. You know, I pictured it in a movie. So that was my technique. But I had friends who would give me all this advice and papers and stuff to help me do it. And I realized I just have to do do it my way <laughs> because I've, I've written many things already, you know. And what are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on deciding whether to finish this book. I have a second book with the same characters or start a whole new thing with new characters. So um, I've been working on it and I'd leave it alone for a while and then, then I'd work on it again. So I'm kind of in that in between. But um, if I decide to go ahead and finish this second book, then I will um, be working like every day. But I haven't been. If people are interested in you and your work, is there a good place for them to find you, follow you on social media or anything? I'm on Twitter. Myrna888, and I'm on Facebook, Myrna Sokoloff, and I have um, a webpage for the book, which is MyrnaSokoloff.net. Well, Myrna, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Oh, thank you. Glad you 
took an interest in the movie. <laughs> An American idiot Don't want a nation under the new mania Can you hear the sound of hysteria The subliminal mindfuck America Welcome to a new kind of tension All across the alienation Everything isn't meant to be Okay TV dreams of tomorrow the ones who are meant to follow Well, that's enough to argue My country is of the Sweet land of liberty Of thee I sing God bless America Oh, beautiful for spacious skies Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light Like Ukaracha, Lakuka well, maybe I'm the faggot America. I'm not a part of a redneck agenda. Now everybody do the propaganda and sing along in the age of paranoia. Tequila! In other news, a local eight-year-old accidentally exercised his Second Amendment rights yesterday when he blew off his head with his father's semi-automatic rifle. The fatal incident is being hailed by gun rights activists as a victory for America and the Constitution. All right, we are back, and we were talking about an American carol. I have to say that it was difficult to listen to Myra talk because of the point where she was saying that she was afraid that she was afraid and other people were afraid to voice their opinions for a while. That's always difficult for me is the idea that people don't feel safe expressing themselves. I made a joke about Tim Allen earlier and, you know, apparently he's up in hiding in the Hollywood Hills somewhere afraid that he's going to come out and liberals are going to kill him. But that's not a good thing to live in fear. I'm curious, what do you guys think about this whole idea of like people who are of a political bent, not feeling that they can actually express themselves? See, I think everyone should feel free to be able to express themselves, you know, even, even if I don't agree with you. You know, or the government uh, who's in charge doesn't agree with you, but it it seems more and more that it's not about an expression of ideas. It's all become this sort of tribalism. Political discussion in this country has become almost like how people root for sports teams. There's really no nuance. It's just sort of like, well, my dad was a fan of that team, and my grandfather was a fan of that team, and we've always been a fan of that team, and don't question the team, and just go along with it. And and I think that that's a very scary place to be when when people are uh, uh, working in that mindset. Are they genuinely afraid to express their opinion that people will react horribly, or are they just afraid that if they say something that doesn't go against the status quo, they're they're going to be challenged and they don't want to be challenged? Is is that because I I mean I can relate to that. I mean I like to complain and sit and bitch, but I hate being challenged. My idea of heaven is just to sit in a room and just shit talk everything and have no one go, well, no, you see, you're wrong. You know, I don't, I don't, I personally don't like that. So I'm thinking maybe they feel the same way as me. And like when they say something, they get upset when someone says, well, no, I disagree. I mean, is it a case of that or? I mean, for me, like that's exciting. I like people to debate me. 
because I want to, I want to understand where maybe I'm wrong. I don't have a problem with that. You don't like my opinion on that? Well, you know, explain to me why I'm wrong. There's this meme that's been going around, and I don't remember where it came from, but it's some guy sitting behind a desk, and it's like, or behind a table in like some sort of like uh, college square or something with a cup of coffee, and it's like, such and such uh, is this or whatever, uh, but, you know, change my mind or something. So it was this banner, and people kept changing it to, you know, um, you know, all these various pop culture references. But I think it was related to something about like, you know, I think it was actually a political thing, but originally, but I can't remember. I mean, I, I want people to change my mind. I want new information. I want someone to give me a new perspective on something. You know, I mean, I always want to grow and want to learn new things, you know, and, and it's the same thing. I mean, if, uh, if, if I feel the same way about something now as I did when I was, you know, 16, then maybe there's something wrong. I mean, uh, the, the one thing I talked about and Mike knows this and people have listened to the show before might know this is, you know, when I first saw the, the, the film that I consider one of my favorite movies of all time, I fucking hated it. And then I went back and looked at it like five years later and I go, this is fucking genius. It took me a while to get it. And that's okay. It's okay to learn new things. It's okay to be open to ideas. Well, I mean, I just, I just love McDonald's so much, and I just don't want anyone to disagree with me because it is the best restaurant ever. Rob, it was actually Steven Crowder's "Change My Mind" meme. I'm looking on knowyourmeme.com, and it was "Male privilege is a myth." Change my mind, and he was at uh, Texas Christian University. And and then that's been turned into a bunch of them, such as uh, what was it? Um, there's one of Tommy Wiseau, and it's like I didn't hit her. There's a whole bunch of them. I can't remember. Uh, one of uh, one of my favorite sites. Whenever memes pop up, is a site. I think it's called uh, Know Your Meme, and it's this guy who just does research and he like collects these and kind of shows how they evolve and people you know take them over and change them into things. So that one's film really. That one's fun. More than anything, it comes down to the wallet and the idea of if you are of this different opinion, then you're not going to get hired. If it comes out that you are not a liberal in Hollywood, that you're not going to be hireable. So we don't want to have you at our big liberal party where we eat lobster and steak all the time. So, which is, which, I mean, as liberals, I mean, God, we have just the best parties. It's just amazing the kind of parties we have all the time that we don't invite our conservative friends to. It's kind of like the atheist parties that I've been to. Oh, my God, those are a hoot. I saw that one. It was uh, an eyes wide shut, wasn't it? I feel bad that people would feel like they're not hireable and stuff. But, I mean, you know, James Wood still could get work i think and john voight john voight still gets work like crazy i mean he's working on a bunch of shitty things but he gets work and kevin sorbo works on shit but that's more by choice i think than anything and even because they have those those political bends at least for me that doesn't change the fact that i don't find you know that that, that i wouldn't find their i wouldn't go see their films john voight has done amazing work. Like, I'm never going to discredit, you know, Midnight Cowboy or, you know, all the other movies that he did. I mean, James Woods has done some great work as well. And I, I don't, that doesn't even factor into my thought of going to see a film with them in it, you know, where I'm going, oh, I'm not going to give them my money because they're conservative. No, you know, I mean, if they're doing good work, it's good work. That's all that really matters. I still go see Tom Cruise movies, even though I know he's a Scientologist. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's the one thing that, for me, it's it's just about 
what the final product is. I mean, I'm, I'm often reminded of um, talking about, you were talking about Herzog earlier, and I remember uh, seeing my best fiend, and he was talking about working with Herzog, uh, working with Pinsky, and what a fucking pain in the ass he was. But he goes, look what's on the screen. He goes, I couldn't get that any other way. And he goes, yeah, I had to put up with a bunch of shit, and we almost tried to kill each other and pulled guns on each other and all that stuff from time to time. But, you know, that doesn't matter. That fades. All that matters is 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 the output. And for me, politics doesn't matter. It's about the output. To me, politics is a personal thing, much like religion, much like sexuality. Those things are not in my sphere. You know, I've got my own take on a lot of things, you know, and I don't line up in any real particular way. So for me, it's about I want to go see good stories. I want to go see something that engages me. I want to go see something new, something interesting. I want to see good work. And I really don't care who makes it in that way. There'll be people who have problems. You know, there's been a lot of discussion lately with, you know, things like the Me Too movement and things like that. And, you know, how do we handle things like Roman Polanski's work? And how do we handle things like Woody Allen's work? Now, granted, that's not political. That is, you know questions of, of sexual politics and in, in, in legality uh, to a certain to a certain extent but to me I always go you have to separate the work from the artist you know it has to live in its own place because there's a lot of great painters and writers and musicians who do awful people you know beat their wives and treated people like dirt but they created amazing work and if we're going to judge the work based on who these people are in in the political realm then you're really going to miss out on a lot of really good stuff you just are and 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 i feel sad for that were you the one who said this about louis ck when when the, it came out about him and you were you were saying it was you, it was hard to separate the art from the artist because his, the you know his art was basically his 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 actual life so the, it, it, I, were you the I, one that said that? I I post I posted a few things on Facebook about seeing a bootleg of "I Love You, Daddy," which hasn't been released. I got a bootleg of it and I watched it, and it's almost like he's apologizing for certain things that later comes out because there's several uh, pieces in there where he's talking about you know no that's not feminism feminism is this and and then he's got one scene where he actually says okay fine I'm sorry to you and to every woman ever. You know, and it's almost it, it's almost like a preemptive apology, like knowing what we know now, like you can watch it with this with this thought. But it it's not to say that these things don't play out in the work. I mean, hell, like like you couldn't figure out that Woody Allen was into really young women by seeing Manhattan. Like, come on. I just want to clarify something here really fast. Uh, jump up on my soapbox. You mentioned Roman Polanski. You mentioned Woody Allen. We mentioned Roman Polanski and Woody Allen in a recent episode. We were talking about Marnie and, you know, knowing now what we know about Alfred Hitchcock and what a piece of shit he could be off screen um, working with Tippi Hedren and, and some of these things. And uh, I got called out, you know, how dare I talk about Woody Allen? We don't know if these uh, accusations by uh, Mia Farrow's daughter are true or not and yada, 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 yada. I, I haven't even been keeping up on that story. I've felt that Woody Allen was a creep since like the late 90s when he and Soon Yi got together. So I just want to preemptively say that I've felt that Woody Allen was a creep for a lot of years, not just recently. So, and that's all there is. And also, I don't think that there's some sort of weird anti-Semitic conspiracy against 
against Woody Allen, uh, against uh, Roman Polanski, against anybody else, Harvey Weinstein, any any other Jewish person who happens to be an absolute creep. I don't think that there's an anti-Semitic conspiracy going on here. So just put away your tweets right now, please. Yeah, I I mean anyone who dates across you know the Thanksgiving table is come on, come on. All right, that was a bad look. This period. You know, like, don't date in the family, even if you're not genetically related. All right. This is really sick. Well, what are you going to say about uh, about this person, Rob? What are you going to say about that person? What are you going to say about them, too? You know, there's this other person and it's just like, no, just stop it. By rights, most artists are a little off. So it you have to look at what's created, you know. And the impact of the creation. I mean, I'm a big jazz fan, and it's like you look at people like, uh, you know, Mingus. I mean, Mingus was mentally ill. Uh, uh, Miles Davis had problems. I mean, uh, Charlie Parker. I mean, there were so many great artists who had just off. And what are we supposed to do? Burn all their records and not listen to it? You know, I mean, no. It's it's great work. It stands on its own as work. Wait till all the shit about me comes out finally. I mean, my God, what are you going to do? Stop listening to this podcast? I don't think so. I stopped listening to it years ago. That's probably for the best. So I'm not going to pick on uh, an American Carol for adapting uh, a Christmas Carol. Uh, There's an amazing video out there, and I will post it on this episode, called 1200 Ghosts, where someone with just an amazing amount of time on their hands went through and cut together the Christmas Carol story, all of these different versions, because it has been adapted across so many media, across so many TV shows, uh, radio dramas, movies. I mean, there are so many movie versions of it, and then just so many nods to it in other places. And this video, I think it's an hour long, and it goes through and basically retells the Christmas Carol story with clips from different films and tv shows it is fantastic um i do have to say that i have one small complaint about an american carol is that it sounds a little too close to an american christmas carol which is actually my personal favorite version of a christmas carol that's the one with henry winkler where he played scrooge i my god i love that movie when i was a kid that was the the go-to for me when that one came on the, especially that part when um well he's benedict slade in this one he's not ebenezer Scrooge, but when slade is talking to the kid about what the piece of wood could be and how you have to use your imagination and it could be a bad and it could be this and it could be that that's one of my favorite things and henry winkler just kills it in that movie i absolutely love that version i just like the name benedict slade it sounds like a jim brown character my thing was is that if if someone's coming from a point of view that point of view really needs to be solid and codified especially if you're making a political statement satire which is obviously what this film was it wasn't a comedy for the sake of comedy it was it was driving home a political uh, thing. As a matter of fact, I put in my notes that I think that what they were trying to create with this film was much like uh, what we saw with Black Panther in that it was like, finally, I'm represented on screen, you know, 
And, and we saw how, like, my friends who went to see Black Panther were like, oh, this is so great, you know, just strong black folks and all of this, and, and, and like, every position, this is great, you know, and all these different ideas about what that means to be black and, you know, both from Africa but also in America. And, and, and in a way, I think they really could have done that with this. They really could have made uh, a comedy that highlighted the, the themes and the things that they really care about as conservatives in America – and and taken you know taken some joy at taking shots at, at the left and believe me there's plenty you can take shots at on the left, um but but the thing was is that it just they just didn't do it it, it just wasn't executed well enough and I mean I would love to see that film I really would I would love to see someone really take the piss out of some of the ridiculousness on the left because some of the stuff that I can't stand. You know, I mean, I, I joke about, you know, there's there's one th- I've got a lot of hippie friends who love the Grateful Dead. And, and I tell them, I go, you know, I feel about the Grateful Dead the way I feel about Jesus. They both had a f- couple of good hits, but damn, are their followers annoying. You know, just shut up about the dead already. You know, it's just it gets it just goes on and on and on. So, I mean, there th- there's a lot of places in there where you can make fun of like tree hugging hippies and stuff like that. That's fine. You know, go ahead. Take take a shot at anyone. You know, I think anyone who takes a philosophy of life so serious that they can't really examine it and kind of step back from it and look at where it's ridiculous and, and really kind of question their own methods is, you know, uh, what was it? Was it uh, was. It Socrates or Plato or whoever it was one of the ancient Greeks that said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. Let's examine those issues. Let's have a laugh about it. Go write it. As written, this film uh, is basically just the film equivalent to getting in a Facebook argument with your aunt. It's just that level. I mean, it's if this was made now, it just it, like lying Hillary would be the punchline to every gag, you know? I do agree with you that it is sort of the equivalent of getting into an argument with your conservative uncle or aunt on Facebook. It really is. It really does feel like that, you know, where they would just use the word libtard over and over again at you or something. There are so many annoying things about liberals and about being a liberal. I mean, and why not just go go to that swifting level that we're talking about, you know, go all the way, you know, have – Rush Limbaugh in hiding somewhere and have, you know, uh, gay people uh, married and uh, impregnating one another with, uh, 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 you know, frozen sperm and eggs so that they could basically abort the babies and eat them. You know, why not? You know, if you're going to do this, let's make a nightmare scenario and just go fucking bonkers with it. But instead, it's like, yeah, the, it, we're, we're just kind of not really sure where to go other than rat poop and fat jokes. Also, at one point, the terrorists are for the sanctity of marriage, which I don't even know what they're, where they're going with that point. Yeah, because uh, Davi is against it, is, is against gay marriage, apparently. Well, he should be, because, you know, the Taliban are ultra-conservative, you know, Islamic fascists, which ultra-conservative Christian fascists would be as the same. I mean, if you're going to line political columns up, you're going to find commonalities between conservative people of all stripes, you know, but I don't understand why they would make that joke because it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, I think there's way more similarities between hardcore right-wingers and uh, the Taliban than they would like to admit. Was that inflammatory there? Did it, was, that, was that bad? No, it's not. Because because the thing is, is anything taken to an extreme 
on either end of the political spectrum is is laughable and dangerous. It just is. It just is. And and you know what? If if you want to conflate all liberals as, you know, buffoons and morons, like these people obviously feel that that more is. I often laugh when conservatives like to think of Hillary or Obama as liberals. Really? Like if if they're liberals, you really have no idea. You really have no idea because they're about as center as you're going to get. They really are. It shows how far right the right has gone if if that's considered liberal. They're, they're not commies. They're not socialists. They're not, eh, you know, we're going to have production of everything and everyone's going to – no, not in the least. Not in the least. You know, you're, you're not electing uh, members of the Communist Party here, please. There's – you know, it's, it's, it's really kind of ridiculous. Yeah, so other films have done this stuff better, I have to say. And even a film that Zucker was involved with, which was The Hot Shots. I think that them making fun of uh, Arabic peoples in that was even funnier. I mean, it wasn't as good as the way that they made fun of the Germans and the French in Hot Shots. But, I mean, this is really the law of diminishing returns when it comes to these guys, is that the older they get, the less funny they seem to get. Which is a shame. And I was glad when they had that injection of the, uh, you know, the, the Wayans brothers with the Scary Movie franchise, when they teamed up with uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker with Basketball. I mean, Basketball, there's a lot of problems with that movie, but, but, but I actually really enjoyed that one. It's just, there are some really stupid things in there that are absolutely hilarious. I mean, the whole argument with the word dude, I just love that bit. Dude, quit thinking about yourself for a change. Dude, I'm not going to cave in. End of story, dude. 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 Well, I guess you've got a point there. I think that was more Trey Parker, Matt Stone than David Zucker, because I know like they had a pass over the script. So I think a lot of what works in that movie is because of Parker and Stone. I mean, Parker and Stone are much like like if if Zucker is a conservative now, you know, Parker and Stone are libertarians and they always have been made a point of that. So they love to give it to everybody. And that's why I think that if you're going to talk about taking the piss out of more and liberals, as you talked about, Mike, I mean, Team America does it, you know, and does it much better. Also, if you want to talk about sort of like having a goof at the terrorists, I mean, Team America, it's a much better joke that all of the terrorists speak in Durka Durka and it's called Durka Durkistan versus all of the um, terrorists are named Mohammed and Hussein. It's just not as funny. Which just seems like a joke from the 70s. You know, it just seems like something he didn't use on airplane and he just sort of used for this one. You know, it just it feels very old. It feels very creaky, that joke. And when you talk about sort of terrorism in in their films, I mean, it's the second airplane, and I haven't seen it in a long time. But there's the scene I remember where Sonny Bono walks in and he goes to the airport, you know, the little store, and he's trying to pick out a bomb. Like, like a scene like that's hilarious, you know, where you're going to buy the bomb at the airport to blow up the plane. It's it's just absurdism. The balance in here, I think, the, the, the problem is, is that, that they're trying to be too heavy-handed with trying to make political points, and there's not enough absurdism. I think that's really what it is. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. It's a, it's a very point. It's just, it's, a, it's like also a very angry film. I think it just, it has like a screaming at the television quality. The entire, like the, the tone of the movie, and I think that's why it wasn't a hit too. It just, it's very off-putting. It's, it's just very off-putting. 
But at the same time, you have to remember that this was made in the Bush era. So, so to a certain extent, who are, who are they raging against? You know, they just had eight years. This came out in 08. So they had eight years of Bush. Okay. Now I can understand if you made this a couple of years later in the Obama era, you got something to rage against. You're like, oh, those liberals and Obama. But who, who are they arguing with at this point? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I remember reading an article. They were asking why were why were so so many Trump supporters angry after the win? Because there was a bunch of incidences where, like, a guy maybe you heard about this. He punched a woman out in a restaurant because she was talking against uh, Trump. And the 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 reasoning they came up with with this was that the fact that no one there was there was a, a bunch of people that were not on their side. In regards to the win, no one was like it, it seemed like a lot of people weren't happy. And I think this is I think um, an American Carol is kind of like in the same vein of that, where it's like it's just a reaction. It's like, why aren't you guys on our side? You know, I mean, he's good. Come on. He's good. you got to be on our side. And it's just sort of an ang- anger that not everyone is on their side about this issue. Which, which to me is almost the same problem that I've always had with with people that want to evangelize religion to you is this idea that we can only feel comfortable if we fill the world full of mirrors. That is long, I need to have my opinion validated and expressed back to me. Otherwise, there's something wrong with the universe. And and that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I actually think that people who are on the fringes or people who, you know, they're, they're not going to feel the same way I feel about things, and that's okay. You know, there's a nuance to things. And, and I'm secure enough in myself to be able to to accept that. And I think that when it comes sometimes that there's people on the political spectrum, both left and right, that really get upset if you don't agree with them, much like people who are like trying to get you to go to church and go, well, why don't you like Jesus? Well, it just doesn't, it doesn't compute. I've put the program in, it doesn't work in the computer. So let's just move on and we'll all enjoy our Thanksgiving dinner together. You know, (laughs) it's usually the conversation I have to have. Well, I think the only people that were really happy about Oh, never mind. I'm not even going to say that the Russians were the only people that were happy with Trump's win. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. As of today, childbearing is herewith forbidden. Oliver Reed and Geraldine Chaplin in a new film about a most frightening future. Doctor, I want to have a baby. That's impossible, Carol. I know, but I want my own baby. You know that's impossible, Carol. No one is allowed to have a baby for the next 22 years. ZPG is a motion picture that shows what can happen. What do you think you're doing? One word from me and you and her and the baby have had could happen to you any day any day ZPG ZPG rated PG that's right we'll be back next week with a discussion of ZPG and children of men it's a twofer before we go I want to thank this week's co-host Rob and Mike Rob what has been keeping you busy sir I'm doing the day gig. I uh, Last time I was on, I believe, I talked about how I'm working on the Film Threat book. So maybe by the time this uh, comes out, I will have a publisher. So uh, the good news is 
funding has come down for that documentary. So if you're a fan of Film Threat and you're excited about Chris, uh, who was on before, talking about a Film Threat documentary, that is indeed happening. Can't tell you who's uh, paying for it, though, but it is some notable people. And um, that's going to happen. So I'm hoping that with uh, the fact that the full feature Film Threat documentary happening, that that will help move my book along and find a publisher so that that'll happen. So that'll be exciting. I've got a project I'm working on right now with the uh, Knight Foundation, the Knight Foundation, which is based in Miami, but they also do uh, programs in Akron, Ohio, and um, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Detroit around arts. I received a matching grant from them to do a thing, basically the first part of the Orbit book, uh, if you remember the Orbit book that I did, um, about Detroit punk rock and Detroit punk history. So I'm developing a punk rock, uh, Detroit punk rock archive from the late 70s and early 80s, and that'll be hosted on a website as long with a couple of events that'll take place this year and next. And I'm also working to release uh, three compilations of uh, released, unreleased, and live tracks from a lot of those bands from that era. So um, more information on that will be coming, and I hope uh, maybe some of you folks will support it because it's going to end up being a crowdfunded campaign in order to help me meet my match, which is uh, about 15000 It'll be a little less than that, but we're going to have some cool stuff. And um, if you like, um, you know, punk rock music and specifically want to hear what some of the stuff was like out of Detroit, some really cool shit. Um, maybe you'll, uh, you know, take part in that. And I've still got the record label, which you can find out at hfvinyl.com. And, um, you know, I, I miss being on the show. So I hope those who have stuck around with the projection booth continue to support it and continue uh, to support Mike and all the great stuff that he does and you know, um, I, I'm going to be back uh, later this year a couple times, so I'm looking forward to that. The people I've spoken. I, I guess so. You know what you should do is when it comes to who's funding the documentary, you should probably have just purely sexual predators fund it. So then we can have this whole, can we separate the art from the artist thing again? That would be probably pretty fun. Yeah, why not? You know, I like inviting uh, chaos into my life. Yeah. And Mike Sullivan, what is new with you, sir? Uh, well, before I get into that, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, Rob, I'm looking forward to the the film threat book. I, I, I you know, as I told you before the uh, recording began, uh, I, I love the Orbit book, and I'm looking forward to the uh, film threat project. And I, I wish you all the best on that. But for me, uh, I'm doing a lot of work for Shock Cinema. Uh, I uh, I got an interview coming up in the next issue. I don't want to reveal who it is, but uh, you can. My name will be associated with a celebrity that I talk to, and they talk back to me. And it was very nice. Uh, it was very pleasant. Uh, I'm also involved with the Shock Cinema blog. Uh, if you want to go on there and, and hear me complain about the you know uh, the latest releases, you know it's uh, Shock Cinema Magazine uh, blog. Uh, I don't know if that's the web address, but you can uh, just Shock Cinema and Mike Sullivan is stupid because that was one of the comments. Uh, and and but uh, yeah, you can go on there and just tell me I'm stupid. You wouldn't be the first. Um, also, uh, I'm going to be. St- I, I mean, this is. Breaking news. I'm very excited about this. Uh, I'm actually going to be starting a podcast in April, and I'm hoping, you know, I can get maybe one of you guys involved, in it, maybe both. Uh, it's called uh, Pod Least Academy Acast- 6, uh, Solion Dare Siege, and I will be discussing uh, the Peter Boners Police Academy movie, uh, Police Academy 6, City Under Siege. And that will be every episode. Uh, I'll, be ta- I'll be getting guests. I'm, I'm hoping that. Some of the people I've worked with in the past few years, Daryl Mayeski, who uh, edits Scream Magazine, uh, Steve Pachowski, who edits Shock Cinema, 
Uh, I'm hoping uh, Doug Tilly, who does uh, Eric Roberts, is the the fucking man, and um, uh, No Budget Nightmares. I'm hoping they can maybe get involved with this, but uh, it's going to be a fun time. We're going to be discuss the sixth, the penultimate Police Academy movie, and I'm very excited about it. And this is big news. Now you're doing it like a minute by minute, or is this just every single episode? You're just dedicating it to Police Academy six. It's well, it's a little bit of we'll just discuss Police Academy six. Uh, the the guest, it's it's going to be guest specific uh, because uh, we just need like the guests uh, um, sort of take on the movie. What you know, what they took away from it. Maybe maybe one episode will focus on David Graff's performance. Others will just focus on Leslie Easterbrook. Uh, like I said, you know, if you love Police Academy, you love podcasts, you love the six movie in a franchise. This is what we're going to do, and I think it's going to be it's going to be a big big lot of fun. Sounds good. I uh, put me down. I will I will do it. I will find the time. I'll carve it out of my schedule to do it for you. And one of the things that I really like about you, Mike, in in your reviews, and I've posted a few of them from time to time on my Facebook page from time to time, um, and and people argue about how how they're like what is this guy you know what's his problem i i think it was with the um the the recent uh, blade runner sequel and um <laughs> is that i may not agree with you but sometimes you make some good points in those so i you know i, I may not agree with you but i'm still gonna read them and i'm and i usually find your reviews entertaining because you you are definitely not boring when it comes to writing those reviews that that really means a lot. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate that. I do. Thank you. I just think you're stupid. I'm going to make a movie where I make fun of you for 89 minutes. Oh God, I'd be I'd be so flattered by that. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> you're going to be eating pizza with rat shit on it. It's going to be. You know, in my case, that would be the truth. That would not be an exaggeration. Well, I will find the link to the Shock Cinema blog, and I will post it over at projection-booth.com, where people can find out more about today's episode as well. You'll also find links over to Rob's site. You'll find uh, links over to what uh, Mike is doing. When your podcast goes up, Mike, I will be sure to promote the hell out of it. I hope you can do a little promo for me. I'll run down the show, do that kind of stuff, and make sure that people are, are coming over and listening to the podcast. So. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. And like I said, go over to projection-boot.com, and you can also find links over there to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Uh, donors get early access to every episode, as long as they are not bleeding heart liberals, uh, libtards, cucks, or snowflakes. So, you know, I think that, that none of those people are going to be listening to this episode. So I think we're safe. I think this is a safe space for my conservative brothers and I. So I'm just doing the OK sign right now, and then a big old thumbs up for our great leader, Donald Trump. And we're going to make America great again. What would you do if you were asked to give up your dreams for freedom? What would you do if asked to make the ultimate sacrifice? Would you think about all them people who gave up everything they had? Would you think about all them warnings and would you start to feel bad? And free, it costs folks like you and me. And if we don't all chip in, 
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I'm sure that there'll be some sort of uh, complaint on this episode, much like when we did Bloodsucking Freaks and someone's like, I didn't want to hear a socialist, feminist, you know, college professor going off about, a, about this movie. What the hell?